This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. We're back with the penultimate episode of Art of Darkness, season duh, duh. dos, spy. And wait, what's it, it wait, really? What's, wait, what's penultimate mean? <laughs> the one before ultimate. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, yes, it is. You're yes. right. Okay, yes. good, very good. Uh, and of course, our, our ultimate episode is is coming up. The final episode of season two is going to be a special where we're going to do a, a an eyes wide shut watch party my favorite christmas movie uh mm-hmm. cannot wait i've got my i've got a little christmas spirit on right now oh nice you oh, can see it on, uh, on the youtube what does yeah. it say there what does it say there brad a very snoopy christmas e- right epstein did yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's right. gonna be on the youtube anyway so that's all oh right. yeah well there you go you gotta so get over to youtube you gotta subscribe get those numbers up help us out Mm-hmm. Live from St. Paul, it's Art of Darkness. I am so excited for this core episode. The heart of the show are these episodes. Tonight, you probably got it from my little yell there. We are going to be covering not an SNL alum, mm-hmm. kind of the SNL oh. alum. I don't want to give much more away than that, but you'll see what I mean. And in this endeavor, and in fact, the the person who prompted us to cover this subject, the great comedian from Detroit, Michigan, Gilda Radner, is my own dear sister, Chelsea Smith. Chelsea, how are you? Hi, guys. Very excited to be here. So So good to have you. Yeah. Yeah, Coutsmania part part it, deux. Yes, it's a family <laughs> affair. Kellen just came on, and now Chelsea is gracing us with her with her presence. And I asked her to come on the show. I knew she was going to be in town for the holidays, and I said, "Who do you want to do?" And she said, "Gilda Radner." And I said, "Who?" <laughs> Which I'm in, I'm frankly now a little embarrassed about. Uh, and I think you'll see why as as we go along here. But Chelsea, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself, what you have going on? And let's not get too much into the Gilda Radner business yet, because we have a show format where we got to ask Brad a question first, but introduce yourself to people. Sure. I'm hoping that my comedic genius like Gilda will come out to shine tonight. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, yes, I currently live in Sacramento, California, and I own a wig business. For those on YouTube, I'm very disappointed that I did not get Brad a wig for this evening's show. But you know what? Yeah. I guess we have to come back for a penultimate <laughs> penultimate. Yeah. <laughs> if you bring a, if you come back on Art of Darkness yet next year or or any time, and you bring Brad a wig, you ship him a wig. 
mm-hmm. I will be floored. I guarantee <laughs> that will send our Patreon numbers through the roof. <laughs> I believe it. I mean, yeah. this is truly a missed opportunity, but you know what? Yeah, Just have to right. come back. And where and you're you run a you're a little modest. You run a very successful business and you you model the wigs and everything yourself. So you're very comfortable. You're more comfortable on camera for good reason than than Brad and I are. We we just started putting this on YouTube. Uh where can people find your find your stuff? Yes, I was a, a speech and theater kid and that's how I know Gilda Radner. Granted, you know, I was a, I want to say a junior in high school when I was doing this. And I don't think YouTube was even much of a thing then. So I feel like I could have learned so much about her, her and really epitomize her a lot more than I ever did. So I'm really excited to learn more about her myself. But I, I am across TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. I am like Lady Gaga. I live for the applause. It's where I get to be live and be a character um, since I'm not being doing any stage things. But this is even easier because I can just press go live and be, be on everybody's screen. Right. And it's it's at Chelsea Smith Cosmetics, correct? Yes. Chelsea with an EY. Chelsea with an EY. And there you go. And that's my that's my uh, dear sister. And she is going to ride along with us. She's going to ride shotgun as we dig into this. I am very excited. This is not going to go Crowley length. Uh, she and her family have an early flight in the morning, so we're not going to keep her until midnight uh, as, mu- as much as we probably could. Uh I have come prepared. I am very excited to cover Gilda Radner on this on this mm-hmm. core episode. But before we dive into it, just a little bit of housekeeping. Patreon. Every episode mm-hmm. you get an extra 20 or 30 minutes for the after dark. We've got a book club coming. Season three starts in the new year. Brad is already prepping our first subject. And also uh, it's relevant to the book club because the first book we're going to read is Heart of Darkness. Brad, who are you preparing? Joseph Conrad. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be good. That's ties in with, you know, art of darkness, heart of darkness, one of my favorite writers. So yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. Get in Mm -hmm. there. And uh, next year, the rate to get in the door goes from $3 to $5. Everybody at three gets grandfathered in, but Hey, if you're hearing this in the future, Chuck out the five bucks. If you listen to a few, yeah. you figure we do on, we try to average two of these core episodes a month. If you just the books alone <laughs> costs us, <laughs> there's a certain amount of budget. Support the pod. We really appreciate it. We love our Patreon. We love all our listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, support the show any which way you can. If you if you like what we're doing, go in five star, follow it on YouTube, share it with people. If everybody yeah. listening to Art of Darkness right now shared it with three, four, five people, we would have an explosive amount of growth next year, right? Mm-hmm. We're totally Absolutely. independent. Nobody yeah. is signal boosting us. We're at war with the algorithm. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. So please <laughs> support the troops. Yeah. <laughs> support, support support your podcast. <laughs> support your podcast troops. I'm yeah. in holiday mode. Uh, but you know, yeah. this is going to be. This is a little bit in this in the spirit of Gilda. So I'm kind of excited. This is going to be a lot of fun. Okay, let's do it. So getting into the meat of, of the episode, we always when we remember, yeah. uh, open with a question <laughs> yeah. and close with a question. We usually remember to open. Yeah. Sometimes we forget to close yeah. with a closing question because we podcasted for five hours. Yeah, and if you uh, so if you've got the Art of Darkness bingo card out, you're not going to get it on the forgot the opening question. Uh, right. You may get it on the other end. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, Brad Kelly, what do you yeah. know about Gilda Radner? 
Well, Gilda Radner, uh, she's born probably, I'm going to guess the 40s, maybe the 50s. Comedian from the from Detroit. Uh, we, we know and love her here in the Detroit area. She was on SNL early. Uh, she was on a number of other things. I don't I couldn't really tell you other movies and things. I remember a movie she was in from when I was a kid, but I couldn't even tell you the title of it. Um, and she, uh, I hope this doesn't spoil the bio, but she, um, she had cancer of some kind. I don't, I'm not sure what it was. I don't think it's, I, I, I'm not sure what the cancer was. Um, and so died quite young, probably, I'm not going to guess she died relatively young. Um, and, uh, and tragically, uh, sort of at the height of her fame um and other than that i just know that there is a, a charitable organization i think it's called gilda's club that does does quite a lot quite a lot of work around the country something to do with cancer or cancer awareness raising funds for research i'm not sure exactly what it does but i know it does it's it's still going strong um other than that i don't know much big hair she's got big hair Great yeah. big hair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was something that she discussed with her husband, who also had uh, quite a lot of hair. One of her husbands. Okay. That, that okay. could have been the wig. Uh, right, you could have. You could have been a wig. She could have had a custom Gilda Radner wig for Brad Kelly. And that now you just awesome. have to come back on the podcast again in the future. <laughs> it would have uh, taken up. It would have taken up like all the space sort of behind me. Crown <laughs> here, you, Brad. You'd be like cousin it trying to podcast, pulling it aside to talk to the mic. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was pretty good. Brad, okay. I'm impressed. Okay. Uh, right. Before we before we go on a little bit, I want to ask Chelsea too not not what you know about Gilda Radner, but what was your what's the reason she popped to mind right away for you when I said, "Hey, who do you want to do?" I think basically just from your reaction too, I'm just like I should know her. And you know, when I spoke to other people today, I'm back in Minnesota, and I was like, "Yeah, we're going to do a podcast about Gilda Radner," and everyone's like, "Huh?" I I feel like I know her, and to me. To know her history, it's really surprising that we don't tip our hats to her more, speak about her more. But I mean, she did pass away in 1989. I was mm -hmm. born that year. So, I mean, it's definitely a while ago. However, I'm just still very surprised that we don't want to talk I, about her more. I completely uh, second that, having done my research, research and we're going to get into this. And I will say, uh, Brad, she was the, and, and Chelsea, she was the first person cast for SNL. Oh, the first person. She wow. was part of the freshman class of the not, I think huh. it's not ready for primetime players. Right. I think that's right. what they're still called. Right. Uh, and you don't get, SNL doesn't look the way that it does without her. It sure. would have taken some other alternative course. And then when you think about how much that show influ influenced uh, comedy mm -hmm. into the 80s, into the present, uh, her stamp is is absolutely massive. Um, and to be the first and, and a woman. Yes. Is yes. like bonkers to me because if you look totally. at the people she's with, is insane. 
a killer's mm. row and we're going to get into yeah. it. And this is, this is going to be another one of those episodes, Brad, where our little uh, thesis, our light motif <laughs> on Art of Darkness, that there are only 25 to 50,000 people alive at a given time and yeah. everybody else is just uh, an NPC is going to come into play here too, because <laughs> Gilda is one of those lives where, oh, him, 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 her, her, her. I recognize yeah. that name and oh, she dated who and what and where. Okay. So without, well, I got a little, little further ado. I got to tease the after dark. Yeah, so please, for Patreon, we always do extra bits and bobs, uh, especially for the core episodes or like a little biographical anecdote, or we go a little more deeply into one of, one of the stories. So for this, after Dark for Patreon, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. We are going to look a little more deeply at her legacy, which I think is very important because she did live a rather truncated life. Uh, she died rather young. We're also going to look at some uh, saucy, spicy details about when she met Gene Wilder on the set oh. of Hanky Panky, who was to become her husband. Uh, she claimed that he did certain things to her on the set that we will talk about during oh. the after dark. <laughs> yeah, a little little <laughs> anecdote. Yeah, oh, a little anecdote. And then yeah, we also I did we get have... a text from you that said, "I'm watching Hanky Panky right now," and I did not know the reference. And I was like, "Cool, good on you, <laughs> cool, cool dude. That's yeah. great." I'm just going to move. Like, we'll just we'll slide over that text and uh, move on. Yeah. <laughs> good job, big brother. <laughs> Way to go! I put it in all caps too, which signals yeah. that it's a film that you were excited <laughs> about it. Yeah, uh, it, it, it signaled. <laughs> I just wasn't sure where we were signaling, and I'm like, it's cool. Um, so I was, I was relieved to read uh, what right. Hanky Panky was uh, after that. Very good. Yeah, Kevin is either back on his meds or back yeah. off his meds. Right. We don't know which. <laughs> uh, uh Hanky Panky, the 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 film where she met uh, Gene Wilder, who would become her. Her husband. Um, I didn't know she was married to Gene Wilder. Oh, wow. we're going to get into it. Cool. We're, All right. That, that figures heavily in tonight's story, the great Gene Wilder. And uh, yeah. what we, and then the final third part of today's After Dark for Patreon is going to be about Gene Wilder's brief footnote to her book, to Gilda's book, uh, which she wrote about her, her life, but also principally her relationship with Gene and her struggles with fertility and then later cancer uh which is called it's always something and it's a, <laughs> it's, this has got to be the most trade paperback book of all yeah. the art of darkness books i mean i'm literally it's like toshin editions yeah. uh you know like this is just but you know what yeah. this is a gem of a book so don't hmm. let the kind of the the format of it fool you this is um yeah. especially when you understand the direction that it takes uh, mm. it's, it's consistently funny. It's almost macabre. It's got mm. a little bit of a gallows humor to it. And uh, as we go, you can see, I have my little notes and things here. We're going to see yeah. at the end of the book, uh, Gene Wilder has a note. And then there's also a poem from Gilda and something she wrote a list to herself that mm. is all quite poignant when you know, we're arriving toward a, toward a rather young death. So we will cover all of that on the after dark. Cool. Are Sounds we ready? Great. Yeah, let's do this thing. Okay. So just like Saturday Night Live, Chelsea, our guest, has prepared a uh, three-minute monologue. 
think it was an eight minute duo. So what I could perform. I am joking. She has not prepared that. But wouldn't that be funny if uh, if you had? Uh, Gosh. Well, so I want to. So I have two books that I'm referencing uh, today, in addition to various links online, and going to lean a lot on the Wikipedia for this, uh, for the spine of the bio. Um, the second book that I have is called Bunny Bunny, uh, hmm. and it's Gilda Radner: A Sort of Love Story by Alan Zweibel. Uh, that was who- the book that the speech was written out of. So Bunny you Bunny. performed. You performed a speech uh in from a cutting from that okay well i'm going to read a few of these um and the first one i'm going to read is just meant to be an introduction um to zybel and uh uh and which means onion auf deutsch which is funny mr onion um and gilda and the reason i want to open with this is to Put us in the year 1975, SNL, these two meet, and then we're going to work our way back to meet this person, and then we're going to go forward. So here's my understanding is this this is when they meet, and it's just a dialogue. It's a duologue. So it's a very unusual book. It's not like a normal memoir. It's quite literally scenes and vignettes from this guy who's like this legendary comic writer. He wrote on, He's written on Curb. He wrote on SNL. Can you help me be a parakeet? Excuse me? I think it could be funny if I stood on a big perch and squished up my face like this. Uh-huh. But I need a writer to help me figure out what the parakeet should say. Could you help me? Really? Could you? Sure. Really? Yeah. Thanks. I'm flattered you asked me. You are? Uh-huh. Thanks. Don't mention it. I'm Gilda. I'm Alan. I know. How do you know? I took the liberty of asking one of the other writers if he knew the name of the big, nervous-looking guy who's trying to keep a low profile by sitting in the corner behind the huge potted tree. And he said, your name was Alan. First job in TV? Yeah. It's a little overwhelming, isn't it? A bit. Just look at all the talent that's in this room. No thanks. A producer who seems real smart. Uh-huh. Writers who wor- whose work I've admired for years. Me too. And a group of the funniest improvisational actors in the country. I know, Gilda. In two countries, huh? Some of the actors are from Canada. Oh, it's scary. It's very scary. And that's why you're hiding behind that huge potted tree, because you're scared? Yes. Because you're very scared? Yes. So am I. You are? Look, is it okay if I sit next to you behind that huge potted tree? Really? This is my first TV show, too. You're kidding. No, I'm not. Wow. Well, can I? Can you what? Sit next to you. Sure, Gilda. Have a seat. Thanks. Comfortable? Sort of. Want me to move that branch away from the front of your face? No. Why not? Because this way we can keep talking, but no one will see our mouths move. That's true. (laughs) I know. Plus, if either of us feels like fainting, we could get oxygen from the leaves. What do you mean? Photosynthesis. Photosynthesis. Remember from school, photosynthesis, the process by which green plants take carbon dioxide and with the help of sunshine and chlorophyll, convert it to oxygen, which they emit into the air, which we breathe. Remember, Gilda? Yes. So what's your problem? This is an artificial tree. 
<laughs> and it goes on like that. I just want to give you an introduction to this lady that we're going to meet first as a child and what she develops into. Uh, yeah. Very funny. I don't know if I did that justice. It'd be better if it was two people going back and forth. But Chelsea, does that sound anything like the the duologue that you did in, in speech? That's very. Yes, that's pattern. literally how it started. Oh, wow. OK. Well, yeah, we're it's, in, it's very cool. funny. You know, I. I I feel like I'm not that old, but I'm like, if you think about how many years back that was, and it's just like, it's all these little bubbles are coming up. I'm like, yes. Oh, yes. That was the line. That was it. So oh, yeah. it's really neat wow. to hear that again. Cool. All right. Well, let's, let's get into the bio. So we're going to start. And Brad, you were correct. Gilda Radner was born on June 28th, 1946 into a prosperous Detroit Jewish family. Uh, father Herman and mother Henrietta Dvorkin Radner, and an older brother named Michael. Herman's father, George Ratkowski, uh, had emigrated from Lithuania to New York City and later to Detroit, where he established a kosher meat business. Hmm. Herman, uh, her father, despite only a fifth grade education, made the family fortune from an Ontario brewery he purchased in the 1920s. There's a big Canadian connection, which we'll see with, with Gilder. She eventually spent some time in Canada. Um, and much like Crowley, brewing business in the family. Apparently, yeah. this is a way to, to create a, a intergenerational wealth. Uh, so Radner's mother, Henrietta, was an aspiring ballet dancer who worked as a legal secretary until she married Herman in October of 37. Radner remembered her childhood as one of the most difficult periods of her life. She mm. uh, she struggled with an, with eating disorders rather seriously, which we're going to come to. And if you get into her book, uh, it's always something. the The hypochondriasis practically oozes from every page, which then becomes ironic because she was right to be. At the same yeah. time, she was very, almost a bit of a character, a caricature. She was very self, she's very self-effacing, but also just like, I worry all the time. I am always worried about my health. <laughs> bit of a, she's aware of it anyway, and she makes light yeah. of it. But yeah, she did not have a great childhood. Um, because her mother could not tolerate the Detroit winters, the fa uh, family spent four months each year in Florida which disrupted the school year and it affected her ability to make friends. So I think we're going to see in, in Gilda's, uh, Gilda's childhood, a bit of a, how to make a comedian, how mm. to make an artist, uh, how many great comedians uh, work from a place of, well, how do I get people to like me? I'm not, she's, she wasn't that good looking. I mean, you know, not to be, I don't want to be crass about it, but she's not some bombshell. And in fact, later in the movies, that was kind of, they would play with that. Uh, there's a film called uh, Woman in Red uh, that Gene Wilder stars in and directed, where the whole gag is that he, uh, there's this total bombshell model looking woman who shows up in red and literally does a Marilyn Monroe type move in the first 30 seconds of the movie. And then there's this case of uh, kind of he accidentally makes a date with Gilder. So I don't mean no. to sound crass, but they they would play off that. So how do you make people like you? Well, you 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 get funny. Um, mm. So uh, Radner became very attached to her governess. So this is money we're talking about here. We're talking about governess money. 
All right. Yeah. I don't know, Chelsea, if you're there yet, but uh, you know, if you, <laughs> if you ever get a governess uh, for 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 your son, I just l- let it be known. I would like a governess as well. <laughs> I want a governess for myself. Yeah. I'll yeah. Get one of those. We could all use a governess. What what I happened to all so. the, the governesses? Chamber a chambermaid I, too. Yeah. yeah. I would yeah. also like to go to Florida for four months mm. during right. the winter on the reg. Yeah, that's uh, what everybody in Michigan does, but they don't do it till they're like retired normally. Like that's what you do when you're, you know, most of my extended family right now is in Florida temporarily, right? That's that's just how they roll. And I'm yeah. sure Florida's better for it. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so she became attached to her governess, Dibby, uh, was the nickname, Elizabeth Clementine Gillies. Uh, who would become the model for her famous SNL character, Emily Latella, who we will come to. She created uh, two characters that are like kind of seminal characters, uh, this Emily Latella and then uh, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, which we'll get to. And of course, she was one of these early stars from Weekend Update. So we, we just did mm. Norm. Weekend Update yeah. goes all the way back. I did not yeah. realize Weekend Update was like a thing all the way from the gestation in the, the very beginning. I did not realize that. Uh, so <laughs> it's a bit of an SNL time for uh, Art of Darkness. Yeah. It It is funny how sometimes these shows, we, we don't plan them to be like this, but there'll be this like strong connection from one episode to the next. When we're doing such a diverse range of subjects, it's always odd when you see that happen. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we spent a good chunk of time talking Saturday Night Live history on our last episode. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So the school children would tease Radner for being overweight. I have it here somewhere. She was up to 160 pounds at one point uh, and is as low as 93 pounds in her childhood. Wow. So we're talking about severe eating disorders. Um, Dibby provided Radner with her first lesson in comedy, uh, telling her to say you're fat before they can just make a joke about it and laugh. And and isn't that the way like we have the greatest podcast on Earth. Earth. Isn't that hilarious, Brad? (laughs) Just try to get ahead of it. Right, 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 right. It's so good. It's incredibly good. It's tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> is that how that works? I don't think that. I don't think that's no, how it works. I don't. Think I think that's I got the formula wrong. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So she would write in her biography. It's always something that during her childhood and young adulthood, she had battled numerous eating disorders. Quoting: I coped with stress by having every possible eating disorder from the time I was nine years old. I've weighed as much as 160 pounds and as little as 93. When I was a kid, I overate constantly. My weight distressed my mother, and she took me to a doctor who put me on. What do you think her, the doctor uh, put her on in ni- the mid-50s? Yeah, it's probably speed. I mean, I don't have anything uh, else, hardly. Yeah. <laughs> Dexedrine when she was yeah. 10 years old. Uh-huh. Uh, so let's... I I. I think we, as a practice on Art of Darkness, we're going to click on the Wikipedia link for the drug, uh, yeah. drugs from, from <laughs> okay. now on. I that think that's like another, that might be a new bingo card. Did did, did the fellas uh, take a little uh, detour? So dextroamphetamine <laughs> is a central nervous system stimulant and an amphetamine and anantiam. 
enantiomer that is prescribed for the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and narcolepsy. It is also used in as, as an athletic performance and cognitive enhancer and recreationally as an aphrodisiac and euphoriant. Whoa. Okay. Great. And then overdose, toxicity, psychosis. Fun. Nah, let's well. give that, let's give that to the 10 year old. 10 year old. Uh, yeah. Cause she's got a maybe, weight problem. You know, and, and to be, to be frank, and I understand this, this book, uh, her memoir is very much about her cancer and she was really instrumental in raising genuinely being a figurehead to raise awareness for this specific type of cancer that she had. She probably had, frankly saved lives like her going mm. the way she did raised enough awareness she was an a-list celebrity and for her to go the way she did raised awareness at the same time the book is one of these cases of how many docs doctors did you see from right. the time you were nine until yeah. the time you how many doctors well, you just go like real like there's just this like medicalization of everything and it comes across very clearly in this book and i think it's probably a consequence of like having a lot of family money mm -hmm. and we just go to the doctor right <laughs> like, that's right, just, right. it's very just because we're getting ready to do eyes wide shut too which is about a, a doctor who goes on a little little adventure yeah well there's a thing about eating disorders and i i, I don't ha i don't have one so i'm not going to try to speak from experience or anything but my understanding is that often it comes from a <clears throat> a uh desire to impose order on your life in a way right you, mm -hmm. you feel like you don't aren't in control of anything but you're in control of what you put in your mouth so you get sort of pathological about that right and you could see that translating into a sort of over medicalization of everything it's like i'm not in control of every anything but if i have the right prescription for this and i've talked to the doctor about this and i know all my i know where i stand and everything i've got all my blood work done i'm somehow in control right like it's a it's a i've corralled all of the randomness of my life somehow so i could see one kind of turning into the other one if that makes sense i could also see it turning into comedy turning sure. it into something where okay i at, at least i have this sword on me at all times where i can make a if i can get a laugh then then i yep. know that i'm at least i control the situation this situation mm -hmm. is now under my thumb because everybody's laughing at me because i want them to laugh at me yeah mm -hmm. yeah she had sure. enough self-awareness in the book uh and it's always something to when she was was battling the cancer uh she ended up going to see homeopathists and acupuncture and all this. And she would even say like, I just, I, I kept going to the acupuncture and, and the other folks, uh, partly because they were paying the most attention to me. Like the doctors were sort of hard, you know, doctors can be famously hard to get in the room yeah. and to like yeah. get time. So, and she saw so many doctors, they were, by the time that was happening in her life and we'll come to it, they were, they were peripatetic. They were all over. They were in New York. They were in Connecticut. They were in LA. They were in London. They were in Paris. So it was just one doctor and the next doctor. So, I mean, champagne problem, but at the same time, maybe not the best, uh, situation and we'll come to it. It's, it's, it's really quite tragic. All right. Uh, so Radner was close to her father who operated Detroit's Seville Hotel, where many nightclub performers and actors stayed while performing in the city. Yeah, I've heard of the Seville. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is it still there? 
Uh, no, but yeah, no. it's a it's a it's a name you hear sort of bandied about in the history yeah. of Detroit. Yeah, I was gonna say get your get your monocle and your top hat and <laughs> your your cravat and go on down and hold the door open for people, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. That's about what I would be doing. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, he took her to uh, on trips to New York to see Broadway shows. Uh she wrote in her book when she was twelve. Her father developed a brain tumor and the first symptoms came suddenly uh, and uh, he told people they were so sudden that he told people that his glasses were too tight. Mm. Within two days, he was bedridden and unable to communicate and remained in that condition until his death two years later. Whoa. So Wait, how old was Gilda? 14 when uh yeah when he died 12 when he got the diagnosis and became not a vegetable but he couldn't communicate do we yeah. know how old he was uh we could we could find out he must have been that old uh I can look it up well i can look it up while you keep yeah going. yeah i don't have that right in front of me but yeah so just let's put that in place there uh I do have, I know for a fact that I have a quote from one of the books uh, about this, but we'll come back to it. But I just want to, when, when a father dies young, which is also on the Art of Darkness bingo card, when a parent dies young, it's always a bit of a moment like, okay, wow, it's really, so you've got this young Jewish gal who splits time between Detroit and Florida, maybe doesn't have the most social skills are the closest friends and she's ballooning to be big 160 pounds is big isn't it it's got to be for a kid that's that's heavy for, for a, girl. a kid that's big yeah, yeah. And, then, and then and then she's close to her father he takes her to the shows and now he's dead he was uh, uh 60 he was 67 67 so super yeah. young but still yeah yeah, she, yeah gilda was young to lose a father that's for sure right. for sure for sure uh all right so i got a a little bit about her mother here her relationship with her mother was distant and even competitive he died from brain cancer the father he he had encouraged her to perform gave her dancing lessons and of course like i said took her to broadway shows uh the family was not religiously observant in her or, or excuse me she was not religiously observant in her adult life she did have a jewish upbringing her brother had a bar mitzvah she went to Sunday in Hebrew school. They sat Shiva for her father when he died. And for her comic material, she often drew on the Jewish community uh, in skits. You know, it would just sort of come back. So she's, you know, um, yeah. So very interesting. She went to um, an extremely uh, prestigious, like, girls school uh, hmm. called the University Liggett School. Oh, uh, yeah. In Detroit. Do you know this? It's right over here. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's like oh. two miles. That's like two miles from me. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, is it still a, a girls' school? It's still uh, no, 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 no. It's no, but it's still. It's like yeah. all right, all right. That, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's where she went. Okay. Uh, okay. So that's a good school. <laughs> that's a good school. It's not the University of Minnesota, but it's a good school. <laughs> a um, good school. Yeah. Anyway, we always got to make our go gopher joke. Um, so she. She ended up uh, going to the Univers University of Michigan, 
she was going to get a degree in education. I think she was studying theater, but in her, and I I heard different things. I heard senior year, see second year, but any, in any case, at some point uh, at the university of Michigan, she dropped out uh, to follow her boyfriend who's the Canadian sculptor Jeffrey Rubinoff to Toronto. Uh, so now she's moved to Toronto, which is what? How far away from Detroit is Toronto? It's not that far. Uh, it's four, about a four-hour drive. Yeah, that's far enough. And you're, you yeah. are in a different country. Uh, sure. But yeah, it's a big step for her. It's around mm-hmm. this time, she's 19 years old, when she has an illegal abortion. And this isn't discussed much. I didn't pick up very much about it in the book, but knowing what would come later, because the cancer she had would would eventually come to have is ovarian cancer. After oh. a long period of trying to get pregnant, which we're going to get into, mm. so this would sort of linger with her. This would hang with, as you can imagine, it would for for anybody. Um, she, but she was so young, and she just that's the choice she made, and she chose career but she also desperately eventually wanted to have children so her life is there's a tragic side to her life on kind of both sides of things which i think we'll come to um not very funny uh at all in that case well in any case so that happens and now she was in in 1972 she's in toronto she's met this canadian sculptor uh they're living together she was working, she said in one of the interviews that I saw that she was working in a, uh, like in, a, in the box office for some theater, hmm. but auditioning, doing bits and bobs. One, one point she made later in her life, kind of when she was, she was talking about giving advice to young people, stay where you are and do it. Don't get headshots hmm. and move to New York or to LA. Stay where you are and start doing it there. Let them find you. Let them come to you. And I think there's some, mm. it's it's not the same for everybody. Sometimes yeah. maybe you got to go to LA. It's a different path for different people. But Gilda literally kind of got cast in this legendary production of Godspell. Oh. Uh, the, yeah, the uh, musical based mm-hmm. on what is the, based on the book of Matthew. Uh, and Lo- loosely based, yeah, I yeah, think. sure, sure, yeah. The same, the same, the same way that uh, Art of Darkness is based on the book of Revelations, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's about the same, <laughs> yeah. You're not, Chelsea, you're not going to believe the people who were in this, it's just crazy. Eugene Le- uh, Levy, Andrea Martin, Victor Garber, Martin Short, and Paul Schaefer. We're all what? in this 1972. This is what I mean, Brad, about there are only 10,000 people at a given yeah. time. Crazy. Yeah. She would go on Letterman later in the 70s when she was a massive uh, yeah. and look over at Paul from Letterman, the musician. Yeah. Right. He was on that production. That's crazy. And in, he Tor- started in Toronto? In Toronto. And he, during this this Letterman appearance, he would start, he started to play the piano and she did the first like eight, eight bars of the tune. How cool. How cool. That's yeah. got to be a cool moment where it's like somebody you worked with early, early in your career and you kind of run back into them and they've done well and you've done well. Like that's got to be a cool, 
a cool moment. I wouldn't yeah. know. <laughs> Me neither. But <laughs> yeah, I listen to Conan O'Brien needs a friend a lot, and mm-hmm. they talk a lot about that, just the Canada comedy scene, and it's honestly so huge. So I was honestly surprised to hear that Gilda was from this the U.S. because mm. of these names like Eugene Levy. Uh, popping up because I feel like that's kind of where it really started. And so it's really crazy that she'd end up in Toronto of all places. Seems I like her. I like her saying, stay, do it there because that was the place to do it. Yeah. There is something cool about that. I mean, it's kind it's sort of contradictory to the advice I think you're going to get from most people, but there is a certain, um, yeah, I, I, it, I, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Well, so this production happens, it comes off very well. Radner then joined the Second City Comedy Troupe in Toronto. And then from 44, or 44, excuse me, 74 to 75. It's almost the holidays, people. Right. This has been a <laughs> hell of a year for the for the pod. This is the yeah. last core episode of the year. Mm-hmm. Indulge us. I've still got our toe ringing through my head. Um, yeah. So where was I? Uh, let's see here. 74. Yeah, from 74. Thank you, Brad. From 74 to 75, Radner was a featured player on the National Lampoon Radio Hour, old-timey radio, a comedy program syndicated to some 600 U.S. radio stations. Fellow cast members included John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Richard Belzer, Bill Murray, Brian Doyle Murray, and Rhonda Collet, or Hmm. Collette. Uh, Oh, man, I would love to hear some of that. I mean, that is yeah. a killer. I mean, just listen to that. that is a killer's yeah, road right there. That is no joke. And and she's like, that's right out of the gate for her. That's her right. career just like just starting, which right, is just right. nuts when you Amazing. think about the yeah the history of comedy. Yeah. So now we are getting uh, into I, hang on here. I just got to turn my heat off. OK, we're Good getting into. Up. Oh, whew, I'm getting yeah, I'm getting all fired up, Brad. Fired up. Good, good. Yeah, I gotta find my. Okay, good. I've got my my books here. Yeah, I didn't Just, know National Lampoon was a radio thing. Me neither. Yeah, well, it must the, have been a sort of multi pronged because they had uh, they had mm. a magazine, and then there's the National Lampoon. So National Lampoon was like the comedy started as the comedy newspaper of Harvard, I believe. Yes. And then um so a bunch of people came out of there. A bunch of Saturday Night Live people. And, right. And then they had right. a magazine. It, yeah. Cracked. I think cracked was Canadian? National Lampoon. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, Chevy I don't Chase, think so. Chevy Chase is an American. I, I just can't yeah. imagine anyone going up to Toronto, but I mean I feel like some of the funniest people are Canadian. Well, <laughs> like so so <laughs> they are Ryan Canadians are naturally yeah. hilarious. The flag is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. It uh. is. I I I, love I, I mean it. no I salute I, it. I, I salute I mean, it every I, morning. I do too. Oh Canada! Yeah. Yeah. I, I no yeah. offense. I mean, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful flag. Yeah, yeah. Canadians are very, very, very funny. There, uh, no, there Norm are... McDonald. We did Norm McDonald last last love our Norm. last episode. He's a Canadian. I personally don't think anybody's funnier than Norm McDonald. So yeah, the Canadians are they, they got something. Ryan I Reynolds like is Canadian. Is he right. really? Yeah. Yes. Uh, see, they like can't to... be funny and handsome. That's not fair. Uh, I know. See, I like to. I like to think of them as like our our a little more sober, calm upstairs neighbors. Yeah, yeah. that's about right. right. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I like to think about them. <laughs> I always enjoy meeting a Canadian in London because so many of them go over the, there the way that a lot of us end up in New York or L.A. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a moment where you go, oh, yeah, hmm. Yeah. You're not quite like us, are you? <laughs> we are, uh, the Americans, we are a bit much. We are a bit much. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told that. I've heard yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, not personally. I, not I was going to say. I don't, present no, company I thought, excluded. I thought, I just thought you said when sometimes you meet somebody in a foreign country, they tell you you're a bit much. Well, and that you were too. applying that to that, America that generally. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> was in London and people thought I was Canadian. So I guess that's a, the ultimate okay, compliment. Okay, that's a compliment. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, they thought compliment. you were, they thought you're a leaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are getting into now the, the SNL period, which is huge. Uh, so of the three female SNL cast members... Gilda was the standout. There's Hmm. hardly a female sketch comic today who does not claim Radner as an inspiration for her comedy career. And that's from Yale Cohen, the author of We Killed the Rise of Women in American Comedy. And that is true. All you need to do is spend spend a quarter of the time I spent preparing this episode, watch a few interviews with Gilda, maybe watch her one-woman show on Broadway, which you can get on Amazon streaming. We will come to it. Cool. Gilda Live, watch that, and you can see. Oh yeah, there's like a you don't get Tina Fey without Gilda Radner. It's just there's hmm. a direct line, and uh, it's kind of important and interesting. And it's one of the reasons again, Chelsea. I'm glad you brought this subject to us because it's like, oh, well, this was maybe a little bit of a black hole in my understanding of of SNL and and the comedy. All right, yeah. So Radner gained wide recognition in 1975 as one of the original not ready for primetime players. Uh, the freshman cast of the first season of SNL. She was the first performer to be cast in the show, co-wrote much of the material that she performed, and uh, collaborated with Alan Zweibel, uh, who's on the writing staff, Mm -hmm. on the development of sketches that featured her recurring characters. Between 1975 and 1980, she created a lot of characters. The most famous is probably Roseanne, Roseanne Adana, are you are you familiar with Roseanne, Roseanna Dana, no, Chelsea? I, I'm not. I did Either watch a couple, couple clips today of Roseanne, Roseanna Dana. Yeah, and she's Roseanne, Roseanna Dana. I got to say it in the name. <laughs> she's got a weird accent. It's kind of like uh, it's based on some woman uh, who I think I have her name somewhere here, but who's like was kind of a known TV figure. In New York City, and she's like a mashup of of this kind of goofy character. Uh, the name is something like Roseanne, something or other. Uh, so it would have been a case of like maybe you would catch the reference, but it also doesn't matter uh, <laughs> because yeah. it's just hilarious. Um, yeah, and and it's always something was a, a catchphrase of. Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana, Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. <laughs> I, I have yeah. to say that's a that's a great title for a memoir from somebody who's known for being funny. Yeah, it, it's always something. It's I, always I don't know. I something. think that. Yeah, I think that. I think that's kind of totally. a great title. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the cover of the book is just her name because she was just a huge, huge star. Yeah. Her name is the thing that's old. Yeah, it was based on a woman with the unfortunate name Roseanne Scamardella. Scamardella. <laughs> Uh, she's responsible for Baba Wawa, 
the parody mm. of Barbara Barbara Walters. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah, Bob Wah Wah Wah. I've got the Roseanne. Roseanne Rosanna Dana has her own wiki. Wow. Uh, and I'm gonna and it's extensive. It's not as long as Gilda's, but I'm gonna read this a little bit of it. Roseanne Rosanna Dana is a character created and portrayed by Gilda Radner on Weekend Update in the early seasons of Saturday Night Live. She was the segment's consumer affairs reporter uh, who, like an earlier Radner character, Emily Latella, who we need to get into, editorialized on current issues only to go off topic before being interrupted by the anchor. Unlike Latella's meek and apologetic character, Rosanna Dana was brash and tactless. Uh, just really, really funny. And it, it, it's always very, very, you know, formulaic. And, you know, there'd be these like catchphrases like, uh, let's, was somebody banging a piano? Yeah. Is that an argument? Yeah. I, that, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. Good to know. Okay. <laughs> That's happening in our house. So I'll have to, I might have to go and unplug. That's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. the piano. Um, that's actually kind of fun. We got it. It's good. We got uh, an accompaniment uh, yeah. going on. Yeah. 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 But, you know, did she come up with these catchphrases that, like, I'll I'll tell you when I started doing my research into Radner, there was a part of me that's that initially was like, "Ooh, this is kind of dated." Hmm. Ooh, I don't know. Like the but humor, then, you mean? Yeah, the humor. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in her one woman show that they just could not do anymore. Like like there's because the one woman show, we'll get to it, but it's structured like a musical, but there are these elaborate set changes between each piece and. Every time the type of music is different. So she's doing like a rock and roll piece with a rock and roll band. And then the next piece is in a classroom hmm. and on a piano. So there are these elaborate changes. So what do you do? So I assume she can sing. Yeah, she can sing. She's not. Because obviously she's a god spell. So I was I was curious yeah. if she could sing yeah. as well. She could sing well enough to like to carry a 90 minute Broadway show where she's probably singing for 35 of the minutes, but mm-hmm. with backup and like people vamping and right. like, and this is what I'm getting to. So there, there's a character in that, uh, in that one woman show, which isn't really a one woman show. It's this a big cast. There's a lot of people involved, uh, who comes on and he's like, a like a Spanish, were an Italian padre with like a priest caller talking in a really embarrassing accent. You just go, this wouldn't, you couldn't, couldn't do, do that now. <laughs> Could you? Maybe you can, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But it, it, there, there's, my point is once I got over that hump and I remembered like, damn, this is a woman comedian who like had no, had like an abortion when she was 19 in order mm. to have this career in the seventies. And she, she like in helped invent the idea of like goofy characters on weekend update. You go, yeah, "Yeah, this is a little rough around the edges and everything doesn't work. And these catchphrases aren't funny to me now, Mm -hmm. but I came to respect it a lot more. I think it was when, when I saw the one woman show, I began to appreciate like the level she was at and yeah. uh, Yeah. Comedy is tricky. Comedy is one of the, the art forms that, possibly is the least portable across time i feel like Mm -hmm. there's something about and it's not just the topics that they talk about there's something about like you go back if you go back more than a generation or two just the collective sense of humor is different for some reason right and a lot of it is topical yeah Mm -hmm. 
because I've gone back to a lot of old stand-ups that are sort of legendary, and I'm like, eh, I don't know. It's really not that funny. <laughs> and, and yet, at the same time, it's it's, it's extremely important. Mm-hmm. At, so, yeah. Yeah, me, yeah. No, it, know, it's, it's, it, you'll still find moments, and there's still talent, obviously, but there is something weird about humor where it's a little bit, it's a little bit mm-hmm. evanescent. It kind of doesn't well, so, quite, yeah. Let's get into some of these uh, catchphrases, right? Uh, so Roseanne, Rosanna Dana would provide responses to uh, stories that she would tell. And the one catchphrase was, what are you trying to do? Make me sick? I mean, it just people just <laughs> cracked up, you know, and like Radner's character had a tendency to refer to herself by her full name whenever possible. <laughs> Mr. Fetter, I know what you're talking about because I, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, once said the same thing happened to me. She often exaggerated her tribulation <laughs> saying, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> you know, it's just that kind of comedy. You just go, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And the big hair and the suit yeah. and it's really, yeah. really funny and irreverent. Yeah. Uh, Referring to yourself in the third person is kind of almost always funny. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to, I have to pause real quickly and talk about Emily Latella. She, uh, the character that Gilda created. This is the other major SNL character. She was a woman with uh, he- a hearing problem who appeared 26 times on SNL's weekend update uh, op-ed segment between seasons one and season three. So 75 and 77. And she's a would wear a frumpy dress, kind of big goofy eyed glasses. She would always be introduced with dignity by the news uh, anchors who would be cringing, waiting for, you know, what was going to come. And it was all about um, kind of like malapropisms, right? So uh, a typical example is, what is all this fuss I hear about the Supreme Court decision on a death penalty? It's terrible. Deaf people have enough problems as it is. Oh, <laughs> you know. uh, hey, you know, it's that kind of that kind sure. of humor. Uh, so but this was this character was it was based on her childhood nanny, Dibby, who was hard of hearing. Mm. So uh and there was a running gag, never mind, which became like a catchphrase of the era. So this is definitely, you know, they're these these people, SNL was a phenomenon when it came out. It was it's it was huge. big. And it yeah. teleported the the best of them. A lot of people, which of course we know, into film. I mean, it was and that was where you would go because now you had cachet. It can mm-hmm. be fun. Like Chelsea, do you ever go back? Do you like you and you and your family ever go back and like I like going back on YouTube and putting on for like three or four hours, especially this time of year, old timey Christmas specials. It's there's something very cozy, cozy about like old TV. It's like more innocent somehow. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love getting on my Disney Plus and turning on just like these older films and I feel like if you don't do it, then it doesn't feel like Christmas, which I'm trying to make it always feel like more like Christmas when I'm seeing palm trees out my windows. So mm-hmm. yeah. I do love that. And yeah. I the, the, Something to be said for watching like old, like even from the fifties, black and white TV specials from Christmas, it's just a completely different world. And I felt a little bit of that here, although the seventies and the eighties aren't quite as distant, they are getting farther and farther yeah. away. Uh, Later, she would go on Letterman and she had her her neighbors and their kids 
show up on on the set of Letterman, which was it was the first time in years she had returned to the set where they had they had shot SNL because the Letterman people had taken over that studio. So there was like a bit of a nostalgia trip. She was pr- promoting a movie. We'll come back to it. But, you know, then these big bay doors open up and it's her neighbors from Connecticut on either side, these two lovely families and their kids. And mm-hmm. it's Letterman. So there's a little bit of a bite to it. So it's like, well, we got some presents for them. And so a guy, you know, comes out to the families and starts handing the adults like cartons of Marlboros. <laughs> <laughs> and then the kids sing a song yeah. uh, promoting the movie. Okay. It, just, it was just so That's weird. Nice. Yeah. 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 And it, and I, I feel like such things probably still happen on late night now, but there just doesn't have the same. There's just a vibe. I, you can't quite put your finger on it. It's the hair. It's the colors. It's the anyway. Okay. So getting, getting back to the bio, uh, where are we? Uh, Baba, Baba Wawa, which is pretty funny. Um, there's a let me let me I, I came across looking at following along with you on Wikipedia. Mm. I came across some of these malpropisms from Emily Latilla. Yeah, just give you a couple of them that are sort of funny. So, yeah, she would say a thing. She thought a thing was some other phrase. And so uh, here's a couple of them. Uh, she referred to presidential elections as presidential erections. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> she referred to um uh, where's where's another one? Cancer research as canker research, I guess, like canker sore or whatever. Um, she referred to transcendental meditation as transcendental medication, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the Bermuda Triangle as the Maguda Triangle, which <laughs> I, I don't know for some reason that cracks me up. Maguda Triangle. Uh, yeah. Say? Yeah, Mr. Uh, she referred to Dan Aykroyd, Mr. Aykroyd as Mr. Adnoid, which is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, so very nice. Yeah, yeah, you get the you get the idea of the humor. Yeah, good one, Brad. So um, it's funny, and Barbara Walters would say that Radner had been the first person to make fun of news anchors. Now it's done all the time, and mm-hmm. the world is better for it. So I'm all about it. Uh, I think it is very, very funny. So, yeah, let's see. I've got a bit more. This is from the ultimateclassicrock.com. I don't know why they have this story, but uh, this is 45 years ago. Roseanne, Rosanna Dana makes SNL debut. As would be the case 31 years later with another classic weekend update correspondent on SNL, Gilda Radner's Roseanne Rosanna Dana originally appeared on the show in a different form. Like Bill Hader's Stefan, the woman who would become Roseanne was first imagined as a sketch character before everyone involved recognized that they'd struck another vein of comedy gold entirely. Do you know the Stefan character? No. Do we know oh, yeah. this one? Yeah, yes. which one's Stefan? Yeah, he was always he goes to like these nightclubs and he always goes like put his hands by his face and he has to I think he's they have like these prompt cards. So he doesn't mm. know what he's about to say. And it's always some very underbelly New York scene. And it's hilarious because he never read this. So he's trying not to laugh. <laughs> and it's quite wonderful. Cool. Highly recommend looking that up. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's one of the things about SNL is like you 
everybody has their SNL era that maybe you know better than the others. And you got opinions, you know, it's it's almost impossible to know the whole thing from beginning to end. I'm sure there mm-hmm. are some hardcore fans who do. Uh, so I've got a little bit more here. Yeah. So, yeah, in Roseanne's case, that meant breaking out a viewer letter, always from one Richard Fetter of Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is the real name and residence of one of Zweibel's in-laws, whose complaint <laughs> about a current event in the news left the door wide open for Roseanne to first insult Fetter for the personal details revealed in the letter. You must be a real attractive guy. <laughs> and then digress at length, usually about an unfortunate encounter she's recently had with an unsuspecting celebrity. Bo Derek, sporting exposed nose hair, Kennedy relative Carolyn Lee Bouvier with toilet paper on her shoe and so forth. <laughs> After going into graphic detail, Roseanne would invariably explain how she complained to the famous person. Hey, Bo Derek, what are you trying to do? Make me sick? <laughs> I mean, that's how it goes. Q Curtin's disgusted looks and Roseanne's exit line response. Well, it just goes to show you, it's always something. <laughs> <laughs> and it really is all about the delivery and the character. Sure. And mm-hmm. you, know, yep. you could almost feel the chuckles. And yeah, yeah, yeah that's, right? good. that's yeah. good. So let's keep going through the bio so you i think you can get a sense now she's a professional now she's Mm -hmm. a household name uh or becoming a household name and Mm -hmm. in 1978 well she also parodied lucille ball patty smith and so forth in 78 she won an emmy award for her work on snl Mm -hmm. uh the in rolling stone in 2015 they did an appraisal of the 141 SNL cast members up to that point, and they gave her the ninth for what yeah. that's worth, whatever that means, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was the most beloved of the original cast, uh, they wrote. And in the years between Mary Tyler Moore and Seinfeld's Elaine, mm-hmm. Radner was like a type, brainy city girl neurotic so she she occupied that cultural space Mm -hmm. um which i which i suppose uh tina fey very consciously was probably playing with that trope uh yeah in a very direct way while she was doing the show uh she was dealing with bulimia and this would come out later in a book that was written about the period which i think caused her a little bit of distress um she had a relationship with Bill Murray, which reportedly ended badly, which is hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine having a relationship with with Bill Murray end badly, but that would be, be hard. Every time you go see Ghostbusters, you'd be like, right. <laughs> you couldn't enjoy uh, yeah, Ghostbusters. I believe, I believe there's a quote about her going. She said she can't watch it because too many of her ex-boyfriends are in that show. Like, could you imagine? Like you just dated all the Ghostbusters. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 Ooh, I feel so funky. <laughs> she got she got slimed. Uh, um, there there aren't many details about her and Bill Murray in the autobiography, which we're going to be reading more from here because one of the reasons I'm I'm leaning very heavily on the biographical spine right now is that the biography doesn't really kick in until 
a little bit after the SNL. Although she she kind of goes back in time, but it's really about meeting Gene and then and then the cancer and everything. So we'll get into the bio here, which is going to be fun because I feel like kind of getting to know her. But once we get to hear her voice, I think we're gonna we're gonna have a really good time uh, and learn a lot about her. Um, in the autobiography, she men- mentions Bill Murray only one time. Quoting, all the guys in the National Lampoon group of writers and performers like to have me around because I would laugh at them till I peed in my pants and tears rolled out my eyes. We worked together for a couple of years creating the National Lampoon show, writing the Lampoon, uh, the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and even working on stuff for the magazine. Bill Murray joined the show and Richard Belzer. That's the only mention. Mm. So Bill mm. Murray might take that to his grave. I don't know. Bill. Yeah. You're always welcome on Art of Darkness. Yeah, any show. Talk about yeah. anything you want to talk about, buddy. I know he. <laughs> I know he likes that. Seriously, one of my heroes, dude. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, please, Bill Murray, Ghostbusters. I want to stop and watch. <laughs> have fun. you ever had a Bill Murray spotting? I have never had a Bill Murray spotting, but one of my roommates in New York City uh, had a gal pal who was sort of half dating Bill Murray, if they were to be believed. But I wasn't, hmm. I'm not the kind of guy to like go, oh, I want to meet, you know, blah, blah, blah. But like apparently Bill Murray would call and he just like hang, he just likes hanging out with younger women who can blame him. Yeah. Well, I, cause I think he was at like, he's a partial owner of the St. Paul Saints or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying there's a chance we're manifesting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would love to meet Bill Murray. No question. I, I, I'd probably get a little gooey. I'd probably get a little stupid just because of how much. Ghostbusters meant to me as a kid. Yeah, uh, that's a start. That's a starstruck kind of situation. Yeah, it's sure. a bit of a moment where you try to try to not act like a complete moron. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, big Bill Murray fan. Lots mm-hmm. of fun. Um, so moving along in the bio. So she's working with uh, Zweibel. They win an Emmy uh, in '79. The new president and CEO of NBC, a guy named Fred Silverman, offered Radner her own primetime variety show, but she turned that offer down. She -hmm. was the host that year of the Music for UNICEF concert at the UN General Assembly. And this is funny. She also gave the commencement address to the 79 graduating class at the Columbia School of Journalism as... Roseanne, Roseanne, a day. <laughs> Incredible. Right. That was probably a, a hoot. <laughs> so she went across town, went up the, the west side, went to Columbia, <laughs> and nice. That's hilarious. And went to the J school. <laughs> yeah. So she uh, she expressed emo- a mixed emotions about being recognized and approached in public by fans and other strangers. Uh, she would sometimes become angry when she was approached, but then also upset when she wasn't. Uh, (laughs) And on Letterman later, she would say it it would be strange. They kind of commiserated about the experience because, of course, at that point, they both were extremely famous. And uh, they they would both talk about or they both talked about how strange it was that like sometimes people would come up and say hi, like Mm -hmm. they knew them and like your instinct if somebody comes up to you and and greets you like that is to go where do i know you from yeah and it's like right, right i don't know you from adam you know me because i'm on your television five nights a week 
So mm-hmm. they just talked about how odd it is. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be a surreal experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's gonna just get those YouTube numbers up, Brad. <laughs> It'll happen. We're gonna need a few more followers before we start yeah. to get mm, yeah, couple, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So now there's a really interesting turn in her life where we're we're approaching the the business with uh with Gene Wilder, but we're not quite there yet. Of all the Gilda Radner media that you can get on YouTube, I think the Letterman interviews are quite fun to watch. There's an interview she did with Gene that's a little bit, mm, uh, a little I think dry. it's Johnny Carson. Yeah, Carson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you yeah. like the Carson content? Yeah, the no, Carson. I think, I, yeah, the Johnny Carson was the one, the, the interview that I heard about them um, saying, like, do I know you when people come up to you? So. Oh, was, oh, oh, it was Carson. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was Carson, not Letterman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Yep. Thanks for correcting yeah. me. It's it's easy to get confused. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing she said on Carson, uh, which uh, I was going to say, but I'll I'll, I'll uh, say it now, is that she said something really lovely. She could be, she's very funny, but she was also very poignant. And she said the nights the nights can be scary, and I would put you on as a kid you know johnny and johnny would go oh god am i that da, da, da. and and i wouldn't be so scared the night wouldn't be so mm-hmm. scary and i figured you have the you have the week i'll take saturday night oh and that I was that. very <laughs> sweet just that a sweet very, moment who's got us on sundays right the lord jesus the church yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. or yeah. is it the art of darkness pod is dropped on sunday uh, no, yeah, yeah, we don't take those sundays sometimes sometimes <laughs> it is sunday is the lord's day chelsea yeah. but yeah no that's yeah. a good question you're right yeah but i thought that yeah. that is what that is one of the sweetest, too. sweetest moments like in that it's so really genuine sweet. it's a little prepared but at the same time, I don't doubt her her authenticity about it. So well, yeah. I mean, you can imagine like, Johnny Carson was a TV figure like Johnny Carson meant a different thing than a TV figure means to us now. Everybody watched Johnny Carson, right? Or anybody who could stay up late enough watched Johnny Carson, I guess. So you you know now you know those numbers are way different so that's to to then meet him and and feel like you're kind of sharing in his the role he fits into society that's a really that's a really nice moment i, I really like that yeah he was he was american his uncle america's yeah uncle. yeah he really yeah. was yeah and that technicolor tube televisions mm-hmm. yeah whatever uh yeah totally so uh, yeah hell of a moment that's worth watching but also the if you really want a, a dose of Radner, uh, what pay the two ninety nine or whatever it is and get the one woman show, uh, Gilda Radner live from New York, nineteen seventy nine. I was not prepared for this movie. I yeah. did. I had no idea what the hell I was going to be seeing, and it's it's a variety show. And yeah. it opens up uh, in the, the opening ditty is like, let's talk dirty to the animals. And and it's they say they swear at the animals. You know, what the <laughs> hell is this? But it's really, really funny. It's funny. And, uh, you know, she can sing. She's not a great singer, but she can say it's enough for Broadway. And mm-hmm. and of course, she has the entire audience on her side. You're not coming to see Gilda Radner live in New York. You kind of almost right. know what you're going to get. It's like a variety show. It's like got a bit of vaudeville, like old timey variety show and you got this 
kind of stand-up comedy in between these musical numbers and uh there's there's one one number where it's like her in a like a like a blue lame kind of shiny thing and she's got these like three backup singers and they've the fda has banned her favorite sweetener and it's a, it's about like i'm gonna get you fda now i gotta use <laughs> five packets of sugar and you know and I, I don't care about animal testing or something like that bring it back you know stuff like that and it's very very funny and it's it's worth the download it's a, it's a, it's definitely of a time um yeah yeah, any, any case. yeah, I kind of so, miss, miss the variety shows a little bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can't yeah. say I'd, I'd turn the television on to watch one if there was a new one. But yeah, there's something charming <laughs> about that where you're just like, hey, a little bit of comedy. You got a musical act. You got this. Yeah, you got that. Uh, you yeah. could bring it back. I mean, if you did it in a really smart way, it could be brought back. Uh, mm. And it, this holds up. It holds up well enough like that. You go, oh, yeah, clever, fun. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna watch it a hundred times, but I, I definitely wasn't disappointed, and I came away respecting her more because I'm like, damn, this woman can like do a lot, and then you know, and then mm -hmm. she brought out the that the Latelli character, the old woman, you know, and then I don't think I got to the point because I, I kind of half watched it where she brings out Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana, but I'm sure when she does, it's just like people just probably lost their minds. Like that, sure. that for them was probably worth the ticket alone. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so let's see here. Right. So the film, oh, I, I, I've got another quote from, from Bunny Bunny here. Um, let me find it. And this is a, this is a dialogue between her and, uh, Zweibel about Guild Alive. It'll be called Guild Alive. Uh-huh. And it'll be a one woman show where I'll get to play a lot of my characters. Right. And we'll start rehearsals in June. Okay. And it'll open on Broadway in August. Wow. And I want to know if you'd like to write for it. Of course. Really? What kind of question is that, Gilda? I'd be honored to be one of the writers for your show. It'll be fun. It'll be hard work. Okay. It will be a lot of very hard, very intense, very serious work. Okay. Oh, we'll have some fun, but we're going to work hard. Gilda. Yeah? Will we be doing a show or building a highway? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, Zybel. But I've decided to take charge of my career. And if you don't mind me saying, I suggest you start doing the same. What do you mean? I mean, you should watch your flank. My flank? That's right. What's wrong with my flank? I think you should protect it. I should protect my flank? Is somebody planning to attack it? I'm just saying that if you don't protect it, nobody else will. What in God's name are you yapping about, Gilda? Look, you see what's happening. People from the cast are starting to do movies and have success on their own, away from the group and away from our show. And that's what I would like to do. Uh-huh. I would like to start getting my own identity and to try doing different things. Uh-huh. Away from everyone else. I understand. You do? Absolutely. Is viable? Yeah. Do I sound bitchy or horrible when I talk like this? No. <laughs> really? Not at all. Thanks for being so understanding. You're welcome. And for letting me have space while I'm going through some changes. You're my friend, Gilbert. He called her Gilbert. I know. And I would do anything for you. Thanks. Just one question, though. Yeah. What does this, all this have to do with my flank? Jesus, we're back to your flank? <laughs> <laughs> what did you hear? What do you know? <laughs> Listen to me, you moron. Come on, I'm a big boy. I can take it. Should I clean out my desk? The Germans. What about the Germans? The Germans are going to attack your flank. Cut it out. But I think you're going to be okay, because historically, 
their armies tend to show mercy on big boys with clean desks. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? Because you're annoying as all hell. Oh, all I'm saying is that the show has been wonderful to you too. It's earned you respect in the industry and maybe now's a good time for you to start branching out a little, you know, making inroads in movies and in the theater and what's the matter? What's going on with your face? I've never seen it that color. These are compliments I'm giving you. You're a good writer. What are you? Why are you crying? Damn it, Zweibel. I've got so many problems of my own and I really need you to be strong for me. But first, you got to be strong for yourself. And you, Jesus, what's happening to your face? Your lips are the size of inner tubes. <laughs> <laughs> and she ended up going to, uh, he ended up going to an emergency room because he ate bad oysters. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but yeah. So I, he, I wonder what happened to him. Oh, I think he's still alive. He he ended up. Yeah, uh, yeah he ended up uh, going on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. Uh, okay. He's it's Alan's Bible. And he, he I don't know if he went on it, but I think he wrote for mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah, he's just considered a, a like a very, very big deal as a comedy writer. I mean, he wrote this book. Uh, right. and you, you know, you were performing, uh, from it in North Dakota in the nineties or in the aughts. Whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The, the aughts. Okay, no. Yeah. <laughs> 2006. The aughts, the aughts, the aughts. We got a lot of dates flying around, but you, you get my point. Yeah. But he, yes. and he's still around. He's, um, you know, he's, he's 72 years old and he lives in Brooklyn. Oh. Yeah, he worked on uh worked on Monk, worked on Late Tour with David Letterman in 2008, 2009. Uh Curb Wait, Curb Enthusiasm around in 2001? Does that uh, even make sense? I I guess maybe? it was. That's oh. crazy. I'm too young to know that. Uh, <laughs> weird. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he's still he's still he's still around. He's still doing stuff. Um, yeah. Worked on yeah. Martin Short's one man one man show. Wrote okay. a few books. Yeah, he's around. He's around. He's you know he's yeah. he's getting up there. He's born in 1950, so you know I'm sure his career is probably yeah. slowing down as as it ought mm. to for a 70 year old man. Sure. Yeah, but the very very cool and a uh, big part of Gilda's story, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, Gilda Live co-starred mm-hmm. Paul Schaefer and Don Novello. Screened in theaters nationwide in 1980, but it flopped. Mm. Uh, soundtrack album was also commercially unsuccessful. During the Broadway... Okay, that's hilarious. This, The last thing I would want in my Christmas stocking is the soundtrack album to Gilda Live. <laughs> I don't need to listen to Let's Talk Dirty to the Animals. Yeah. But I just remember mom did give, like, we were, she was trying to give us the Susan Boyle soundtrack at one point. I, mom tried Which to give us worse? a lot of, I, uh, Susan I don't Boyle know. or Gilda uh, Radner Live? I'd probably take Gilda Radner Live for the novelty of go. it. Good point. Right. Good point. Sure. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand why it bombed. They're trying to explain why it bombed. Yeah. So during the uh, the first broad or during the Broadway production, uh, Radner met her first husband, G.E. Smith, a musician who worked on the show. There are a lot of musicians on this show. Uh, they were married in a civil ceremony in 1980. In the fall of 1980, after the, the departure of the all the original SNL cast members, Radner began appearing with fellow actor Sam Waterston in the John Carr play Lunch Hour, 
They played two people whose spouses are having an affair and who in retaliation begin an affair of their own consisting of lunch hour trysts. The show ran for more than seven months playing in various U.S. theaters, including the Kennedy Center in D.C. That's a wow. long run time a long for time. a two-hander. I assume it's a two-hander. Uh, and that was a movie? No, that's a play. Oh, got it. Yeah, so yeah. she's kind of she's she dabbling traveled. in theater now, yeah, and traveled around with this, two, this play. Um, hmm. So... Yeah, Sam Watterson, for people that don't know, he's the law and order guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's yeah, he's yeah. uh he's done a lot of theater. Yeah. Um so I want to get into the personal life here. And she makes a, a move into uh into film at this point. So let's see here. So she she had the boyfriend from Toronto. Rubinoff. Then she did have an off and on on again, off again relationship with Martin Short. Amazing. <laughs> From, Amazing. Yeah, during Godspell. <laughs> Romantic involvements with Bill Murray and Brian Doyle Murray. So she had a had a relationship with the one brother, then Bill, and Dan Aykroyd. Ac- so she's got she's got I know. most of Ecto One covered. <laughs> uh Radner's friend Judy Lee, uh, Levy recounted Radner saying she found Ghostbusters hard to watch since the cast yeah. included so many of her yeah. ex-boyfriends. Ackroyd Murray and Harold Ramis. Oh, and Harold we, Ramis. Huh? And I, apparently, yeah. Chelsea, didn't you own didn't you own one of Harold Ramis's SUVs? I owned Harold <laughs> Ramis's wife's Lexus. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. That was a cleaning the glove compartment discovery. Interesting. And yeah, we had their insurance card in our glove department. Not haunted. No. Not haunted. No. Yeah. It's a. Yeah, that that uh, I think we saw the whole history on the car, and and that man was very diligent about getting his oil changes. Giving his oil changes and making sure there are no ghosts in the transmission. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um. So, Radner marries this musician. And now we're going to meet Gene Wilder. And Mm. she was married when she met Gene. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. So Gene Wilder, by the way, one of the greats. Hilarious. Yeah, truly one of the greats. Uh, So we're going to bounce around in time just a little bit, but... I'm just going to say, so here we go. So Radner met actor Gene Wilder on the set of Sidney Poitier's film, Hanky Panky, which I was watching. <laughs> there it is. Came there out in 1982. Yes, which came out in 1982. Uh, she described their first meeting as love at first sight with some additional business, which we're going to talk about on the Patreon mm-hmm. after dark, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Mm-hmm. She met Wilder. Her marriage started to deteriorate. And here's her talking um, about what would eventually happen. Like in the romantic fairy tales I always loved, Gene Wilder and I were married by the mayor of a small village in the south of France, September 18th, 1984. We had met in August of 1981 while making the movie Hanky Panky, a not-too-successful romantic adventure comedy thriller. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and ha- have either of you seen hanky panky 
No. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a uh, it's Sidney Poitier trying to do a Hitchcock comedy and not doing Hitchcock very well and not doing comedy very well. Mm. Like it's uneven. It's a good watch. It's like a B minus C plus type movie. It's not a disaster. There are great moments. Gilda's very funny in it. There's a great scene where uh, Gene Wilder, for some reason, ends up in a magician's tux at the front of a New York City, a jam-packed New York City bus, and he doesn't have correct change, and he starts <laughs> to make change, and then suddenly, you know, flowers pop out, and it's got a lot of old-timey comedy in it, but it's sweet, and their chemistry is, like, radiant. You can just see, mm-hmm. well, these two... Too. Like there's some sort of fate. It you re- mm. and I don't say that lightly. It's really right there on mm. the screen for you to see. Um, so she, she goes on. I had been a fan of Gene Wilder's for many years, but the first time I saw him in person, my heart fluttered. I was hooked. Mm-hmm. It felt like my life went from black and white to Technicolor. Gene was funny and athletic and handsome, and he smelled good. I was bitten <laughs> with love, and and you can tell it in the movie. Hey, you really can. Mm-hmm. The brash and feisty comedian everyone knew from Saturday Night Live turned into this shy, demure ingenue with knocking knees. It wasn't good for my movie career, but it changed my life. Up to that point, I had been a workaholic. I'd taken one job after another for over 10 years, but just looking at Gene made me want to stop, made me want to cook, made me want to start a garden, to have a family and settle down. To complicate things, I was married at the time, and Gene had been married and divorced twice before and was in no hurry to make another commitment. I lived in a house I had just bought in Connecticut, and he lived in L.A. I got an amicable divorce six months later, and Gene and I lived together on and off for the next two and a half years. My new career became getting him to marry me. I turned down job offers so I could keep myself geographically available. More often than not, I had on a white frilly apron like Catherine Hepburn in Woman of the Year when she left her job to exclusively be Spencer Tracy's wife. Unfortunately, (laughs) my performing ego wasn't completely content in an apron, and in every screenplay Gene was writing or project he had under development, I finagled my way into a part. (laughs) <laughs> and they do and i'll come back to this in a second they they did make uh another movie after hanky panky called the woman in red uh and things things deepened on that set and that movie is uh but kind of bizarre it starts with that scene i described where this total bombshell model walks out in a parking garage and has a little Marilyn Monroe mo- moment. And that's the start of the movie. And Gene Wilder's just, just can't get Man. enough of her. And then he follows her. He, he sneaks into the elevator with her and uh, all sorts of problematic behaviors. Uh, and then it's revealed. She's, <laughs> she's coming, uh, she's coming into his office and then she tries to call the desk where she's at. And then it's a case of mistaken identity. And Gilda Radner plays like a German speaking secretary. Who's kind of frumpy and, and dumpy. And, um, there's a weird, there's like a weird sound, very weird sound, like a cocaine weird soundtrack where <laughs> at like there, there's a song, The Woman in Red, and it's repeated over and over and over again. And then like later, he's about to go and catch a flight to LA because he she rejects him 
the the smoke show rejects him but then he he throws himself on the hood of the car and like slobbers at her and she does this you know drags her finger toward her and suddenly she's been converted because he's willing to throw himself on the hood of the car and okay let's have a date and meet me here well he goes to the place she's not there but she's called the the bar in the restaurant or the the bar and says I'm working, you know, because she's a working model. Why yeah. did you come to LA like this same night? So he he ends up maneuvering his way to LA, but on the way, he picks up a bag. This is going somewhere. He picks up a yeah. bag of like champagne and stuff, but ends up and like while he's outside the champagne store or like the the wine store, whatever it is, there's literally a song, and the song's lyrics are don't drive drunk. Don't drive drunk. Don't <laughs> drive drunk. And I'm like, is this supposed to be fun? Like, what the heck? Is this a PSA? Like, what is this? It's a very... How, how did this uh, movie do in box office? In the box right. Office? Yeah. I, uh, think... I can't imagine it did well. No, I I, I think that... And, and honestly, I'm not maybe doing it. It's kind of funny. It's got a little bit of a... If you imagined like a, like a passable... Like lower not low middle brow woody allen-ish movie it's kind of like that it's it's not a great film uh but you know i it 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 made 25 million dollars on a nine million dollar budget so it did well enough yeah yeah there was kevin you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said the cocaine soundtrack there was a lot of content films music produced in the 80s that like once everybody came down we're sort of like yeah it wasn't that good <laughs> yeah it's got a it's got a 32 percent on rotten tomatoes mm-hmm. richard shickle of time wrote that the film was one of the summer's most pungent pleasures a well-made sex farce of classical proportions mm-hmm. if there is a horse to fall off or an airplane forced to land at the wrong airport you may be sure teddy will be aboard and teddy's the character <laughs> in it uh it like okay. wilder carries this movie if you like sure. uh wilder you'll enjoy it i mean it's a lightweight yeah. kind of almost you know sitcom all i got is uh willy wonka for gene wilder so that's like yeah I, I, I've never seen him in anything else. I think like, oh, a handsome, athletic Wonka. Right. It, it just doesn't <laughs> translate for me. Hey, it was love at first sight. So for Gilda, handsome, athlete. I mean, he was everything, right? Yeah. Sure. With a purple suit and a top hat. I'm sure <laughs> right. it was quite lovely. Well, I, wait, so let's I wonder get... if that was pre or post Gilda. I wonder how old. Yeah. Wonka, um, that would have been pre. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wonka. Okay. Wonka was early <clears throat> for sure. I mean, what year was Willy Wonka? Brad's uh, on it. I don't know. I'm trying to find it here. Wonka. Uh, 1971. 71. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a decade yeah. earlier or more. Yeah, that yeah. feels like a movie that started production in 1969. Yeah. And, and came out in 71. <laughs> it's it's probably, probably not right. That movie is fucking wild. Oh, that, it's so good. It's so good. It is so good, but it is yeah. wild. When they yeah. arrive at the child, it is a trip. Yeah. 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 I like just think of like grandpa in bed and then suddenly like grandpa's like, yeah, yeah. I can get up for a chocolate factory. Grandpa, what have yeah. you been doing all this time before? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, no, not at all. So getting back to Gilda, um, we were married in the South of France because Gene loved France. If he could have been born French, he would have been. That was his dream. 
The only time I had been to France was when I was 18. I went with a girlfriend in the 60s when it was popular to go for less than $5 a day. Of course, your parents still give you a credit card in case you got in trouble. We went on an Icelandic Airlines flight. The plane was so crowded, it seemed like there were 12 seats across, uh, and it tilted to whatever side the stewardess was serving on. We landed in Luxembourg, and then our next stop was Brussels. My girlfriend was of Polish descent, but had been born in Argentina. She spoke four languages fluently. After four days, she was sick of me saying, what? What did they say? She couldn't stand me. She just wanted to kill me. I was miserable all through the trip. I was miserable in Luxembourg. I was miserable in Brussels. We slept at the University of Brussels. You could stay there for a dollar a night in the student dormitory, where we spent the evening watching the movie Greener Pastures with French subtitles. We went on to Amsterdam, where we stayed in a youth hostel. I'll never forget that there was a pubic hair on the soap in the bathroom, and it made me sick. Years later, I had Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana talk about it. And it goes on. She sort of talks yeah. about you know her experiences <laughs> in Europe. Uh, but it was love at first sight with uh, with Jean, and they you know they end up getting married. There's all sorts of great uh, like bits and bobs. They had a very small wedding in Saint Tropez. They had to have uh, blood tests uh, by law. I don't know if it's still the same, but I assume mm. it has something to do with. You know, the French won't just marry you. There's like some very <laughs> strict business that had to be done. Uh, there's a funny anecdote in this book uh, or a, like a whole passage where they're going in to get their blood uh, drawn and the nurse practitioner, whoever it is, the phlebotomist keeps jabbing Gilda and like, there's no blood. It won't come out. <laughs> <laughs> so she, and she's saying that there's like a, the needle looked like it was rusty and there's like rusty oh. equipment. And Jean was fine. Jean just comes in and immediately gives blood and it's not a problem. So yeah. Gilda again, yeah. kind of in her head about medical stuff a little right, bit. Right. 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 Paints a little picture. Yeah. Um, well, so we're, we're inside their relationship now and they want to have a child and the year at this point i mean if they were married in 84 she was born in uh let me find it again i just want to get it right 46 uh i've got it right here at the beginning 46 so she's 38 now is that right Uh, in 84 yeah 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 so 38 so and and she taught she writes about this in her book like that clock is going off and there's something about Gene Wilder that you know Willy Wonka she wants mm-hmm. to have some Oompa Loompas yeah <laughs> um so let's get into it <clears throat> this is going to be a bit of a protracted uh passage uh. I had been pregnant in the 60s and at 19 years old had had an illegal abortion that probably influenced the messy state of my reproductive organs. For the next Mm -hmm. 19 years, my priority was to finish my education and pursue my career. Now I couldn't take my fate. You'll never have a baby. That was the sentence handed to me. I began to beat my fists against a door that maybe I had locked on the other side. Gene and I flew back to California in October of 1984 He was already working on a new screenplay called Haunted Honeymoon. It took place in America in 1934 and was about a radio performer. Hey, old timey radio. Mm -hmm. Whose family Mm -hmm. tries to scare him to death. 
it was supposed to be a comedy chiller. <laughs> Gene was to be the radio performer, and I wanted to be what else? His wife. Gene worked every day at his office. Meanwhile, I started the screenplay with a friend. You cannot live in L.A. for any period of time without eventually trying to write a screenplay. It's like a <laughs> flu bug that you catch. Even the plumber has a screenplay in his truck. In the meantime, I found out everything about the in vitro fertilization program at UCLA. I found a doctor who would let me into the program. In simple terms, it begins with a surgical procedure called a laparoscopy. Uh, that's where your doctors look at the condition and placement of your reproductive organs by putting an instrument through an incision in your belly button. It, mm. It's an outpatient procedure, but it is a minor surgery that requires general anesthesia. If everything checks out, you can proceed with the program. What happens next, in even simpler terms, is that certain homo hormones are injected into you daily that make your ovaries release more eggs than usual. The doctors watch your ovaries through ultrasound readings, and when you have matured enough eggs, they put you under general anesthesia again to aspirate or remove the eggs. They are then mixed with your husband's sperm in a dish or test tube, after which the fertilized eggs are put back inside you in a procedure much like a regular uh, gynecological exam. This is followed by more hormone injections daily to ensure that these eggs will implant into the uterine wall. The process has, has to be done in a, at a certain time in your menstrual cycle, and the whole thing can stop at any time if something goes wrong, like your ovaries don't respond properly to the hormones or whatever. The in vitro team at UCLA were very excited about their results. I got caught up in their enthusiasm and convinced Gene to do the same. <laughs> it goes on. During the procedure, the woman can go to the hospital to get her daily hormone injections, but the doctors prefer that the husband give the shots so that he can feel more involved. Gene had been in the medical corps in the army and had given shots before, but I still made him practice on an orange and a grapefruit about a hundred times. He <laughs> gave me my first injection in an examination room at UCLA with a nurse and doctor in the room. He was great. From then on, Gene gave me two shots a day at home. As we moved toward conception, foreplay for me consisted of filling myself with liquids every morning to make my bladder large enough to move it out of the way for the ultrasound picture to show my ovaries. Then I'd drive over mountains and bumpy roads to UCLA and sit on my leg in a waiting room filled with women who all had to pee so desperately that they would rip each other's eyes out to have their ultrasound first. <laughs> on the day my ultrasound showed I had matured enough eggs, Gene's foreplay began. That evening, he gave me an injection to induce ovulation, and the next morning, he drove me to the hospital for my second laparoscopy. Uh, well, they wheeled me into surgery to aspirate the eggs. They put Gene in a little utility room by himself. He was right next door to the laboratory where a technician would wash his sperm and join it in, uh, in a test tube with my surgically removed eggs. He described the room to me later. There was a wash basin with a wooden shelf above it that held a small plastic container and a piece of paper with instructions for keeping the sperm sterile. There was no chair or window in the room, but there were a mop and a bucket and a stack of Playboy and Penthouse magazines with a note that said, if you require help. Gene said the instructions were rather vague about when to wash and how to dry your hands. He said the pressure was overwhelming. Him sitting on the floor with his pants around his ankles in the gray cement room. He was supposed to knock on the door when he had the sperm. He told me he thought he was going to go crazy. It wasn't exactly romantic. He kept thinking, 
my wife's going to have surgery. And what if I can't do this? So I'm going to read one <laughs> my more. My goodness. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. But do you see how she's still eking some comedy out of it? Oh, yeah. Right. Of course. They'll find the, the mop. The... That's something. That's something. <laughs> yeah. You just poor Gene Wilder. He's already been in Willy Wonky. He's immortalized himself right. in young Frankenstein. And here he is in a concrete room. Yeah, yeah, trying to rub one out. No chair, yeah. no chair. No, not even a chair. I think, yeah, is this right. a Cardi B song? A bucket and a mop, anyone? No? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, do you feel like yeah. you could, they could have given the guy a chair, right? I mean, something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could maybe give him a, you know, like a nursing assistant or something. <laughs> like, just give him, give him a hand. Goodness. This is not, poor Gene. I mean, yeah, this guy's a celebrity. I mean, it really is. Okay, I've got a, I got a couple of things here, a couple more paragraphs on the same uh, story. Miraculously, everything worked. My ovaries matured, ate eggs, and Gene knocked on the door. Seven of the eggs fertilized in the di- dish. The happy wilders went home and returned the next day to have four of the fertilized eggs put into my uterus. We had to sign a paper allowing them to throw three of the fertilized eggs away. They didn't have freezing equipment at UCLA at the time, and there was too great a risk of multiple births and danger to the mother if seven or more eggs were returned to the uterus. This is what I'm talking about, by the way, when I'm talking about just like how medical it all is. And there is a tragedy here because she does not end up having any children. And very shortly after this, she she gets the other thing comes. It's just sort of awful to think of how much. In any case, it's why I'm going into it because I want to get yeah, no, it's the story. It's, it's yeah. And, and then also she had the um the strength to write this. This is not easy. When did she write this book? End of her life, all the way up until the okay. end. Yeah. Wow. On the morning that was to be, there wasn't much time after this. She'd be by the time yeah. she's right. writing about, yeah, exactly. That's, <clears throat> I mean, the book has the feeling of somebody who's rushing to write a book. It's not mm-hmm. the greatest book I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you under do? You, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. On the morning that was to be the moment of conception, I was lying on the examining table when, well, Jean sat close to my head and held my hands. As I looked between my legs, I could see my three doctors, one, a sandy haired Protestant, the other, a young Chinese American, and the third, a dark skinned Sephardic Jew. The room was quiet, like a joke, like the sort of a joke. Yeah, exactly. The room was was quiet and the lights were dim as the Protestant doctor placed the fertilized eggs into my uterus. The other two watched intently. I was reminded of the World War II memorial statue where all the different nationalities are putting the American flag in the ground at Iwo Jima. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So then she would have to spend the next six hours like lying on her side they had to give her uh she was anxious they had to give her wheat toast and a tranquilizer and for hmm. 19 days after this gene had to keep giving her progesterone shots and um i'm gonna keep going it made me irritable and moody i was told to stay at home and do quiet activities but a week later i started to bleed the doctors told me to lie down, but I wasn't just spotting. To me, it looked like someone shot a deer. I bled heavily for a few days and then continued to spot. They wouldn't let me quit taking the progesterone. I knew that I was miscarrying, but they wouldn't let me quit because this was an experimental procedure and they had to follow their protocol. 
They made me keep taking the progesterone the whole 19 days because they said a woman could bleed and still be pregnant. On the 20th day, they did a blood test and it was negative. There was no pregnancy. As horrible as it was, I would have repeated the procedure, but Gene said to me, I will never do that again. I couldn't do it without Gene, but at this point, I lost interest in everything else. I was desperate not to not have a baby. I cried right through Christmas and into 1985. By February, I had booked myself for major surgery to have my tubes opened. This is a serious operation. It can involve six to eight hours of microsurgery, but I was determined. Gene could only say, if that's what you want. I had the operation, and I completely recuperated in a week's time. My tubes were open, and I was elated. All we had to do now was to have sex at just the right time of the month, at exactly the moment I was ovulating. Well, I'll tell you, that was the worst pressure in the world. It was as consuming as the in vitro program, and I drove Gene nuts. It was the kind of obsession they show in the movies, made worse by Hmm. my age. I was 38 years old, and my biological time clock was breaking the sound barrier. I bought one of those new ovulation kits where you are the scientist. You have to catch your first urine of the morning in a cup, mix it with some powder, wait 10 minutes, mix something else, wait 10 minutes, mix it with another thing, wait a half hour, dip a stick into the mixture and match it up with a yellow chart to see whether it is blue or green or yellow. The kit costs about $80 for one cycle. I didn't tell Gene I was doing this. He was already wondering about my sanity. One morning, I couldn't unscrew the lid with the mixing stuff in it. I was going crazy because if you don't do it in exactly 10 minutes, the whole test is ruined. So I had to run into the bedroom where Gene was still asleep. I poked him and said, don't ask me any questions. Just take the lid off this vial. He did it (laughs) and never asked me about it. He was sound asleep. (laughs) So, honey, open the jar. Right, right. Oh, that's romantic. That's that's really yeah. Oh, yeah. but yeah, I I mean, my heart goes out to her for that. It's just like, yeah, the clock ticking, right? You want this thing? Oh, so hard, so hard. So they, uh, they make this third film together, Haunted Honeymoon. Uh, they you recall when I talked about Letterman and the the kids, the neighbor kids came on and sang a song. Mm-hmm. It was for this mm-hmm. promotional junket where she was going around to promote the movie, uh, where they they sang a song. It was during the making of Haunted Honeymoon in the UK, which, by the way, reading reading the making of Haunted Honeymoon in the UK is like <laughs> they went there because the pound was so weak against the dollar at the time. Sure. The movie could be made. I think it. I think it was like nine million dollars instead of thirteen or fourteen million dollars. You, uh, Gene is directing, directing it, starring in it, wrote it, and like they get to live at a five floor terrace house in like, you know, central London, and they're describing their life and everything. And I'm just like, oh, what a <laughs> what a world, right? Like very right. rough, you know. Um, yeah. But this is when, and this is really sad because, like, God, she was still in her prime. Like, right. You know, it's a woman not even yet 40 and like so much ahead of her. And this is where she started to experience severe fatigue, pain in her upper legs. Oh. Um, she sought medical treatment 
And for a period of 10 months, various doctors, most of them in LA, gave her several diagnoses that all turned out to be wrong. They talked about Epstein-Barr. There would always be depression. Maybe you're depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, And she continued to have pain. Um, She, this book had come out, uh, a very highly publicized book about SNL, which included a bunch of details about her eating disorder. She really, really didn't didn't like that. Um, She'd also released a book, by now, we're kind of jumping around, but um, that was written from the perspective of Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, mm. called Get Back to Work, uh, <laughs> something like that, Get Back to, to Book Work, or uh, Get Back to Work Book. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the whole the whole joke of it is that I have it here somewhere. Let me get my notes open because it's too funny just to skip over. It's not a cheap book to get either. Yeah, Roseanne Rod- Rosanna Dan is. Hey, get back to work, book. You know, you can get it <laughs> copies for you know thirty bucks. Uh, you know, um, but the uh, get back to work. Yeah, the preface of the book is her life story. Roseanne Rosanna Dan's life story. Oh, it's a, okay. Yeah, it's a self help book written as Roseanne Rosanna Dana for people who've <laughs> lost their jobs. Preface ends up being her entire life story, which is 101 pages, and then the actual book is <laughs> is 14 pages. That's that's uh, per, that's pretty funny. That is that's funny. When I yeah. when she says that on the the late night shows, I'm like, that's hilarious. And then she starts reading from the book. You go, this is adorable, <laughs> and you can just see it's just the kind of book like you know you've got a niece or you've got a cousin who loves SNL or a mm-hmm. sibling. It's like, here's, there's a book for this is, you're going to love this. Take this mm-hmm. to work and everybody will have a chuckle. Just a yeah, good, yeah. you know, like a toilet book, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, there it is. We're going to have a laugh at Roseanne, Roseanna Dan. <laughs> um, well, so they're, they are in uh, London. They're filming uh haunted honeymoon. She's not feeling well. She does this junket where she's going around. Chelsea, was that Carson appearance promoting? I think that Carson appearance we talked about earlier was promoting uh, the book. I believe it was, yes. I think she was reading some snippets from it. And that's when I went and looked up some actual Rosanna, Rosanna Dana before, just to really understand the reference. But yeah, people loved that character. Yeah, it. I I watch it and I go, okay, I guess. I, yeah, I, I yeah. want to get it. I want to yeah. get it. I don't really get it, but again, I think it's timely. Yeah, I think it's it's of a time, and I think it's also just the irreverence of making fun of a news person like that. And then the the letters are really funny. The letters from the same guy over and over. Hey, Roseanne, Roseanne, and Anna, what's the deal with the United Nations? They don't look very united to me. You know, it's that kind yeah, of do right. do You know, <laughs> and you go. It should be called the you know, ununited nations, the unknown, <laughs> you know, it'd be that kind of, even that's too cerebral. <laughs> like, you know, I'm just coming up, you know, but yeah, anyway. Um, so, and it's really sad because she has these neighbor kids come out, they sing their haunted honeymoon song. They got this big movie dropping. Um, oh, damn. I want to remember the name of the, uh, the fellow who plays, like dress he's like in drag the entire time uh in, in the movie in this movie yeah yeah, yeah. Dom, Dom DeLuise is in this oh uh, okay 
who I think plays his mother <laughs> in it. It's one of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no, his, his aunt, Dom DeLuise as Aunt Catherine Kate Abbott. And <laughs> I, I couldn't find this movie. The cover is extraordinary. Like if you take yeah, a minute, up. look up Haunted Honeymoon on Wikipedia, like the poster is just amazing a comedy yeah. chiller oh wow yeah 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 it is interesting like they the movie career is that it just mm. didn't quite ever seem to take off did it well well she didn't have uh she didn't have much time there mm. is a note uh here i think this is in the wikipedia i'll read this Radner's SNL castmate Lorraine Newman said in a 2018 interview that she believed Radner's movie career had turned out to be mostly disappointing. This was because, according to Newman, directors and producers did not know how to cast Radner in roles where her talents could best shine. She said in the interview, this is her, uh, this is the SNL castmate Lorraine Newman, the specific nature of her talent was she did characters but she would probably have been better served if she had taken part in writing the things that she did. But I don't think it occurred to her. If she and Alan's Zweibel had uh, collaborated on a feature, it might have been a whole different thing. Mm. All right. So you're just throwing a throwing a you got a comedy, you got a female character, you throw Gilded there. She's funny. It'll work. But it's not really her thing. Yeah. Totally. Hmm. So we have... Haunted Honeymoon opens nationwide. <laughs> Bombs. <laughs> a month of publicity uh, publicity for it. They did it. They went around for a month. The mm. movie was only in the theaters for a week. Oh, my God. Bombed. Yeah. yeah. And just and I, after that, uh, Jean flew to London and watched some plays. I think she stuck around in LA. She had a dog that she loved. There's a lot of talk about her dog early sparkles. Um, and now we're going to get to the reason Gilda has not been feeling very well. Hmm. All right. Uh, Friday morning fluid was extracted from my swollen belly. I was taken downstairs again for more tests, chest x-rays and a mammogram. Gene was in the room again when I got back. My psychiatrist paid a visit. We all thought this was probably some kind of infection. I remember feeling calm, which isn't like me, so I must have been sedated. In the late afternoon or early evening on Friday, the internist came into the room. I was lying in the bed and Gene was sitting on the left side of my bed. We had been talking, absently watching television, waiting for the reports to come in. We both looked up into this doctor's eyes as he said very calmly, we've discovered there is a malignancy. A flush went through my body, and out of my mouth came a sound like a guttural animal cry. Gene said he did the same thing, but silently. He still remembers the sound I made because it was so primitive, so emotional, like somebody stabbing a knife into me. What about Epstein-Barr virus and neurosis and Woody Allen and my imagination? I think the internist went on to say that the malignancy was confirmed by the CAT scan and the analysis analysis of the fluid from my belly. Surgery would have to be done as soon as possible. When he left the room, I grabbed Gene's face in my hands and sobbed. No more bad news. No more bad news, please. I just don't want any more bad news. 
I can't remember much after that. I don't remember being horrified or dwelling on it, whether it was just because they were medicating me at that point. I don't know. Everything happened quickly from that Friday night until they operated on me Sunday morning. Saturday, I was prepped for surgery, and Gene says I met the anesthesiologist. Oh, my God. Anesthesiologist. Thank you. What was it? Charcuterie. Anesthesiologist. Say your charcuterie story. My charcuterie? Okay. So, Delta flight. We're supposed to leave around one. So we got like a little lunch option. The flight ended up changing to 6 a.m. So we got to choose what we wanted. So it's 6 a.m. The flight attendant comes over and she's like, you got the charcuterie? <laughs> I'm like, the charcuterie? The charcuterie? I'm like, really? Okay. So my husband's in front of me and I'm like, tell me you're not on airplane mode yet. I have to yeah. text you this. Right, right, and I was right, trying right. to get it phonetically to be enough to spell yeah, out a shark, Terry. S H A R K, right? Shark Terry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's hilarious. Shark Terry. <laughs> I can't believe that I forgot how to read anesthesiologist. I yeah. am just no, I it's am one of those, it's one of those tired. words where if you don't get that first phoneme right, you're right. in the you're in the weeds, man. Yeah. yeah. I get it. I get I'm gonna blame it. I'm usually on the... the I'm usually the one that mispronounces stuff on the show. But oh yeah. Good. You know what? I've I've saved up a little bit of credit. Long story yeah. short, to this part, she goes through all of this and not once does somebody say the word cancer and so she gets hmm. a tumor the size of a grapefruit oh my god from her abdomen um Thanks. so finally on october 21st she's diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer goes through the surgery has her hysterectomy uh, on october 26th surgeons removed a grapefruit sized tumor from her abdomen she then began chemotherapy and radiation therapy uh extremely you know physically painful emotionally painful after her diagnosis the national inquirer ran the headline gilda radner and life death struggle in its following issue without asking her for comment the editors of the publication asserted that she was dying Mm -hmm. And she writes about this in the book. They found an old photo of me looking frightened from an SNL sketch and blew that up to make the point. What they did probably sold newspapers, but it had a devastating effect on my family and my friends. It forced Gene to compose a press release to respond. He said that I had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, had surgery, and my prognosis was good. The Inquirer doesn't like good news, so the Gilda Radner story stopped running. Uh, around this time she saw, well, so we're, we're going to move faster now. I'm going to read some more from her, from her book about the chemo. Let's see here. This is why we did Norm Macdonald last episode. He didn't, he had cancer, didn't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and not to judge Gilda at all for it getting out, but like, yeah, maybe you can see why he did, right? Uh, he he wasn't quite a star on her level, but still, there would have been articles like that, right? Mm -hmm. How long does you know? And, and then people wonder, yeah, how long does he have to live? And then you you right. can you imagine having to watch career retrospectives while you're still alive? Right, right, right. Yeah, you're sitting on your lazy boy, and they're basically like, yeah, 
Yeah. And, no and it, it's even if it's positive and it's all glowing, it's still like, uh, yeah, nobody wants to be told they're done. Yeah. yeah. So here's a little bit of her experience with chemo. <clears throat> chemo three was scheduled right before Christmas. I had a colder virus and I had been having horrible gas pains in my stomach. I went to the alchemist for the examination before my treatment. He felt my stomach. It was hard as a rock. So he sent me to another office to have x-rays taken. Uh, the x-rays showed that I had a partial bowel obstruction, which can happen after extensive surgery. It meant they couldn't do chemotherapy. The bowel obstruction had to be treated. I was put in the hospital immediately. Same room, new procedure. To treat a partial bowel obstruction without surgery, the doctors tie a rubber bag with mercury in it, in it because mercury is heavy to the end of a long, narrow plastic tube. They put the tube and bag through your digestive tract weighted by the mercury. Over a period of hours, it drops through your whole bowel and opens up the obstruction. This may not be a precise medical explanation of the procedure. All I could think about was getting a bag and tube shoved down my nose. The gynecological oncologist came to the hospital to do the job because he is not only an oncologist, but also a surgeon. During my months of chemotherapy, he took charge of my pelvic exams and any necessary surgical procedures while the alchemist did my blood work and took care of my general health. You can imagine the assault on the body from this tubing weighted with a bag of mercury. It was it was one thing getting past the nose and into the throat, but then suddenly you feel it and your whole body is screaming, get this out of here. Your stomach reacts by starting to produce lots of acid. Instead of getting my third chemo, I lay in the hospital bed with this tube in my nose. Here I was, a bald woman with a tube in her nose. I lay in the in the bed and cried that whole night. I stayed in the hospital three days, not allowed to eat or drink anything. I was fed intravenously. It hurt to swallow. And I had a sinus infection at the same time, so I was sneezing and blowing my nose with the tube in it. Suddenly, my whole life consisted of trying to go as long as I could without swallowing because it hurt so much. How I made it through those days, I don't even know. The amazing thing about the human spirit is that when you feel well again, you don't remember those awful days. Gene came almost every day. We did everything we could to make time go by. Played Scrabble, watched television. I remember sitting in that room blowing my nose and wanting to go home for Christmas. But there was nothing I could do except wait for the bowel obstruction to clear. Then they kept uh, taking x-rays to see if it was clear. From the beginning of my illness, I fought everyone around me about having x-rays. Do I really need them? Do I need to have two? Don't you have my x-ray from the last time? I was still trying to not get cancer in the middle of having it. Then a technician told me that the amount of radiation you get in an x-ray is less than you get flying from New York to LA. Since Gene and I live on both coasts and fly back and forth, I began to think of my x-rays as flying to New York and back. It eased hmm. my mind as they clicked away on the x-ray machines. So, hmm. wow. yeah, yeah, she's having a having a tough time. Um, anybody, anybody would. Without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. I, it, you know, it, this is going to be a cliche to say, but it is a case where like, this is, I'm her age. And right. you go, it, it can happen. It really can happen. Yeah. To you. It can yeah. happen in a week. Yeah. yeah, you could have a you could have a stroke. You can get a cancer diagnosis and be on a tube in the hospital in a in a week. So, I know. Um, I'm hoping that they have found a different way to cure that because I'm like, 
damn, do I never want to have a bowel obstruction ever. (laughs) I I suspect they've got a better way now, but I don't know. I'm not a a doctor, but I play one. I'm not going to look that up. Yeah. I'm not nope. gonna look that up. Well, they yep. still do chemo, right? I mean, that's right, still commonplace. Yeah. Bag of mercury. Oof. Yeah. Nice. I mean, what if that what if that bag breaks? Um, nice. she would get involved in wellness meetings and uh su- support groups. And of course, Brad already mentioned that that Jean would kind of found a couple of different institutions in her name to support people. Mm-hmm. Got to remember too, this is early days, still early days of popular media, even into the eighties. Right. Like mm-hmm. people were not like, what do you mean ovarian cancer? Wait, wait, wait a minute. My wife can die when she's 40. What? Like, Hey, right. you know, right. it, 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 Gilda going this way was a big national story. There was a, uh, is it Newsnight or one of these big shows where they had an entire 30 minute episode was devoted to Gilda's dead from this, Here's what doctors say. Oh. I mean, she was that level of celebrity. Um, right, right. So here's here's a little scene of her in, a, in one of these groups. At about 10 after 11, the room was pretty much filled with maybe 40 people. The two group leaders, Flo and Betty, both, of, what is she in Minnesota? Flo and Betty? <laughs> both 11-year survivors of cancer, Betty of an advanced case of lymphoma and Flo of a double mastectomy, told their stories of cancer. They explained what the wellness community was and what it had to offer every person there. Amazingly, everything was free. There were group therapy sessions that met for two hours a week, available at many different times during the week, called participant groups. These groups were the only wellness community activities that required a commitment. They were facilitated by licensed therapists. Everything else was on a drop-in basis, including uh, instruction in guided imagery and visualization and relaxation three nights a week. There were group sessions for spouses or family members of uh, cancer patients, nutrition and cooking discussions, lectures by doctors, oncologists and psychiatrists, workshops on anger management potluck dinners and parties, therapy through painting, vocalizing, and improvising, all techniques that would help in stress management and improve the quality of someone's life. I learned why people go to AA meetings or Overeaters Anonymous or other self-help groups and love them and say, I have to get back there. If indeed God created the world and then left us on our own to work things out, then getting together with other people to communicate is what we should be doing. I learned at the wellness community that that is the most magic thing we have, our ability to open our mouths and communicate with each other. So just mm-hmm. a little little bit from her. Yeah. 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 No, it's cool. Yeah. <clears throat> Makes you think. I mean, it is good to know. We take all that stuff for granted now. That stuff didn't exist that many years ago. Uh, <clears throat> and you can always, whatever your situation, there's a group. If you need, yeah. if you need to talk to people, and it doesn't need to cost you a dime. It costs you coffee. Right. If that. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit here about Bibby, her governess. Um because she's she based she based uh Emily not Roseanne. Did she base Roseanne? Not nope, she didn't the base other Roseanne, one. Rose, the other one, Emily uh right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, correct. So just a little bit about her coming back because she's still around at this point. My parents put an ad in the paper for a live-in nurse or nanny when I was four months old, and Dibby uh, came. Her real name was Mrs. Elizabeth Clementine Gillies, and she was from Canada, but she was visiting her cousins in Detroit when she saw the ad. After she met my parents, they took her upstairs to see the baby. 
She says that I was lying on my stomach in my crib and I turned my head to, on the side and smiled at her and I won her heart. My parents hmm. hired her right away. My mother insisted that she wear a white uniform, white hose, and white shoes. She bought those that day and came back the next day and stayed for 18 years with our family. She was in her early 50s and had been a widow since after World War I. She had raised three children of her own and now is starting a whole new life. When I learned to talk, I couldn't say Mrs. Gillies, so I called her Mida Dibby. Then just Dibby. Dibby and I became inseparable. I owe a lot of my humor to her. When I would come home crying because of some uh, because someone called me fat at school, she would tell me, say you're fat before they can. Let them know that you are fat and you don't care. If they say you are, just make a joke about it and laugh. Just you tell them before they get to it. She coached me through my teens and humor became my tool for handling life. Dibby's the person I modeled Emily Latella after on SNL. Emily Latella was the spunky editorialist on Weekend Update who got everything wrong, but was emphatic about it until she found out she was <laughs> had misheard. Never mind. Emily Latella's <laughs> famous response is straight from Dibby's mouth. Dibby turned 96 years old in March of 1989. Last week, she told me on the telephone, we speak every week, I can't hear and I can't see and I can't walk. But other than that, I'm fine. <laughs> I, grew, I grew up in the middle of that indomitable spirit. When I was 10 years old, I asked my parents if I could go to a private school. The girl who lived across the street went to an all-girl private school on the east side of Detroit, and she liked it. I remember going like an adult to negotiate with my parents about wanting to go to this private girls school. Of course, it cost a lot of money to go there. And I think I told my parents that I thought I would get a better education. They agreed to it. By this time, my brother was in high school and, I, and was be, uh, it was becoming more difficult to take us in and out of schools. There's a little bit about her schooling. It goes on. Um, let's see if that's worth it. No, but I just wanted to get that, that bit in about uh, Dibby, which I think is quite Yeah, funny. no, that's really yeah. sweet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so, alas, the cancer is to return here. Let's see. So was she ever uh, in remission or it was always? Yeah, yeah. So she would go into remission. So uh, she was told that she got into remission. She wrote this book here. It's always something okay. detailing uh, the, her struggles with the illness. Life magazine did a cover in March of 1988, a cover story on her illness called Gilda Radner's Answer to Cancer, Healing the Body with Mind and Heart. Hmm. There was a Showtime uh, broadcast on March uh, 18th of 1988. She guest starred in the Gary Shandling show, mentioned on camera that she had a cancer diagnosis and a treatment, which is explained her hiatus from entertainment. Mm. Um, she was scheduled to host an episode of SNL in the spring of 88, which would have made her the first female former cast member to host the show. But hmm. there was a writer's strike. Um, in September of 88, after tests showed no signs of cancer, she went on maintenance chemotherapy to prolong her remission. But three months later in December, she learned the cancer had returned. And I'm going to read mm, from her geez. book. And this, uh, 
what I'm going to read here is pretty obvious. My CA125 went up. What? I saw Gene's face whiten. Grace became paralyzed. Once you have cancer, you live on a tightrope. You live from day to day. You talk about how something could happen. Something could go wrong. Here on May 3rd at 11 o'clock in the morning, my whole world collapsed again. My happy, positive wellness community world fell apart with this doctor and I couldn't stand. I was shaking and crying. And Gene was being very rational, saying, we don't have enough facts yet. We don't have all the information. You have to get the CAT scan. There could be a mistake. He was looking for every positive thing. Grace was getting ready to drive me to the hospital. Gene is too recognizable, so it was best that just Grace and I go. I went upstairs to get dressed, but I was in a trance. It was unbelievable to me that this could be happening. In the car, Grace was making small talk, but my brain was frozen in the moment when I heard that my CA-125 had gone up. Stuck there. I was just staring. When I got to the hospital, the Connecticut oncologist was waiting there. His presence made me feel as feisty as a bulldog. All right, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? He said that he wanted to run a heart test on me. I said, what do you mean? He said, if we have to give you uh, adromycin, it could do damage to the heart muscle. We want to make sure your heart is in good condition. What are you talking about? You're going to have to have treatment. Listen, my CA-125 was normal three weeks ago. Then he said, it wasn't. What do you mean it wasn't? I've spoken to your doctors in California and the computer misread your CA-125 is normal. When it was looked up again yesterday, it showed it was already rising three weeks ago in April. My CA-125 readings had been around seven or eight, but in my April checkup in California, it had risen to 40 or 45. Now it was 90. The computer had messed up, and with all my precious medical care, I had become the victim of a computer. Mm. My feistiness was melting, and Grace just sat there with me, both our mouths hanging open. She goes in. She has the heart test. Um and uh, she and Wilder, but but obviously she's gone into um, relapse. She and Wilder were video recorded entering the ceremony for the Golden Globe Awards in January. And I think that's probably the last that we have of her. Uh, it's like her last time on camera. I think so, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to get a little bit into the end here um so gene goes away uh he goes to the south of france for 10 days uh well gene was away i became terribly ill i began to throw up all the time i couldn't hold down any food at all the chemo was making my bowel obstruction worse the bowel was closing to the point where i had an almost complete obstruction not only could my intestines not absorb food they couldn't even absorb the natural secretions that my body produced bile would accumulate until i became nauseous and had to throw up i could not eat only the intravenous feedings and fluids at night kept me alive my bedroom looked like a hospital room. I was so weak from chemotherapy that I had to have four blood transfusions. It was the most frightening episode of my entire illness, and I thought I wasn't going to make it. I was so sick that I couldn't even tell what was going on. I didn't know whether the chemo or the obstruction was making me sick, and because this happened during those 10 days when Jean was away, I confronted my biggest fear, the fear of abandonment. I discovered that even with Jean away, there were people to love and support me. So just a little bit about like what she's dealing with there. Um, just pretty, pretty atrocious. Uh, and I want to, I just want to pause again and, and think about 
the fact that she wrote this book, like she got this down right. on paper. Absolutely. Like, that's yeah. what I've been thinking this whole time. Like, how did she ever recover enough to be like, oh, let me type that out? She may have had a hand, but also the, um, I think the grace and the intelligence to know she's got some place in this world. This matters. This is the kind of book that like people bought, they bought, you know, and I'm glad that this book exists. It's not the greatest book in the world. It's not, it's not easy to read. It's not always pleasant to, to read. Sure. It doesn't have a, a shape that makes sense. Like maybe you can tell it, like it starts with the wedding and, and then it bounces around. And now we're talking about the nurse. You know, it's not a fully, fully realized memoir. It's the cancer memoir of someone who is dying right. from cancer. Um, right. And yeah. So Oof. yeah. I just want to uh I mean we we're kind of coming to to the twilight here. You can probably feel it. Um yeah. <clears throat> I want to read the final couple of pages from her book. Sometimes what I've been through will flash back on me and it horrifies me. I can't believe it happened to me. Not me, thinking conscious, funny Gilda the Clown. How could these things have happened? I don't have to dream or imagine it. I just have to recall that it's act that actually happened. Today, I'm continuing a maintenance chemo. I don't want to place too much faith in Dr. Greenspan as I did in other doctors, but he's done so much for me. And there's something about this cantankerous, defiant man. He talks too fast. And when I complain, he says to me, shut up, shut up. I just want to kiss him because he believes that I will get completely well. And I think sometimes that has even more to do with how much the chemo works than what a doctor chooses to give you. I know better now that fighting cancer is a continuing progress, a process like controlling diabetes or any chronic disease. I have to continue to fight it. My eating habits, my lifestyle, my attitude, continuing to get treatment, building my immune system. I have to keep fighting and I can't ever stop. I can't ever let down and say, I beat it. I licked it. I'm finished. But mostly I can't be afraid of cancer. What I've learned the hard way is that there's always something you can do. It may not be an easy thing to do. In some cases, death seems more desirable, but there is always something you can do. I also had to realize that I couldn't do everything I wanted to do. I couldn't keep calling all the cancer patients I knew, and I couldn't try to help heal all the women with ovarian cancer, and I couldn't read every letter I received because it was ripping me apart. I couldn't be Mother Teresa. I couldn't cry all those years for everybody else. I had to take care of myself. For a while, I thought that if I helped the world, then I could get well by magic, but I learned that it just doesn't happen that way. I couldn't follow the progress of everyone I knew who had cancer because I had to pour all my energy into taking care of myself. I had to stop comparing myself to other people and thinking that what might happen to them was going to happen to me. It is important to realize that you have to take care of yourself because you can't take care of anybody else until you do. Of course, my ordeal has been sparkled with angels speckled with angels. I've been blessed with wonderful people. Gene didn't give up. He believed in me and never treated me like my days were numbered. I've been blessed because of advances in medical science. And I've been blessed with nurses like Jody, who sat in coffee shops with me in California and the Connecticut nurses who joined me in bingo and my girlfriends, Pam and Judy and Grace. And the fact that I've been able to afford to get the treatment that I did get, not to mention the miraculous sparkle for dog, a five pound Yorkshire Terrier who mimics my every move and is my constant companion and so forth. I had wanted to wrap this book up in a neat little package about a girl who is a comedian from Detroit. 
how she becomes famous in New York with all the world coming her way, gets this horrible disease of cancer, is brave and fights it, learning all the skills she needs to get through it. And then miraculously, things are neatly tied up and she gets well. I wanted to be able to write on the book jacket, her triumph over cancer, or she wins the cancer war. I wanted a perfect ending. So I sat down to write the book with the ending in place before there even was an ending. Now I've learned the hard way that some poems don't rhyme and some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Like my life, this book has ambiguity. Like my life, this book is about not knowing, having to change, taking the moment and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. Delicious ambiguity. When I was little, Dibby's cousin had a dog, just a mutt, and the dog was pregnant. I don't know how long dogs are pregnant, but she was due to have her puppies in about a week. She was out in the yard one day and got in the way of the lawnmower, and her two hind legs got cut off. They rushed her to the vet and said, I I can sew her up, or you can put her to sleep if you want, but the puppies are okay. She'll be able to deliver the puppies. Dibby's cousin said, keep her alive. So the vet sewed up her backside, and over the next week, the dog learned to walk. She didn't spend any time worrying. She just learned to walk by taking two steps in front and flipping up her backside and then taking two steps and flipping up her backside again. She gave birth to six little puppies, all in perfect health. She nursed them and then weaned them. And when they learned to walk, they all walked like her. Cool. <laughs> what a sweet and that's how story. the book ends? That's how her book ends. Yeah. Wow. And then there's... There's a bit of business from Gene, which we're going to cover on the After Dark for Patreon. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite done, uh, but yeah, that's how our book ends, Chelsea. Wow. <laughs> Gilda Radner. Sweet little, sweet little anecdote. Taking us in some directions maybe you didn't expect. That's for what sure. I'm hoping. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read huh. from Bunny Bunny, the Zweibel book. Uh, a bit about, let me find it. Ah, this is him reacting to her book. She, he, she must've shared a draft with him. The ocean looks peaceful tonight. Yeah, it does. And look how pretty the moon is. Gilda. Yeah. I read your book. You did. Yeah. Last night I had the house to myself because Robin and the kids were, are back East. So I made a fire and sat in the den and read your manuscript. And I think it's wonderful. Really? Yeah, Gilda, it's great. Thanks. I don't know how to handle a lot of it, though. What do you mean? I I didn't know about a lot of the stuff you've been going through, some of the procedures and the pain. I wish I had known. And you would have done what about it? I don't <laughs> know, but that was never part of our deals, Weibel. Remember? Yeah. Hey, my doctors really laughed when they saw the note you wrote me. They did? except for one doctor who didn't understand the history of our relationship. So I tried my best to explain it to him. Yeah. And then I got confused. What's there to be confused about? He always said we should take things slowly, and we are. It's viable? Yeah. If I ask you a question, do you promise to take it the right way? Sure. Because I know how happy you are with Robin. Right. And I'm real happy with Gene. Right. But how come we never got married? I've thought about that, Gilda. You have? Oh, yeah. And? I think we just forgot to. We forgot to get married. It's the best <laughs> conclusion I can come up with. Hey, are you okay? Can you do me a favor, Zweibel? What? Put your arm around me. Cold? A little. Want to head back to the car? No. Let's keep walking. 
Okay. And that's a walk mm. on the beach between the two of them. So they had their own romance. Uh, mm. And of a, uh, yeah. of a sort. Yeah. A creative romance. And yeah. coming up, we're going to go a little deeper on Patreon. I'm going to wind this sucker down, bring us in for a landing. On May 17th, 1989, she was admitted to Cedar sinai in LA for a CT scan. She was given a sedative and went into a coma during the scan and never regained consciousness. Oh, uh, during the scan, huh? Yeah. Huh? She died three days later on May 20th, 1989. Jeez. When was Gene, the book published? I believe that year. Later Post? that year. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I believe so. I mean, copyright 1989 and then copyright at 1990, the estate of Gilda Radner. So. Okay. Yeah, she shared the manuscript with her friend, not the mm -hmm. book book. Right. So just the yeah. Um uh Yeah, uh Wilder was there with her, cause of death was ovarian mm -hmm. cancer. News of her death broke as Steve Martin was rehearsing for his guest host role on that night season finale of SNL. The performers and crew, including Lorne Michaels, Phil Hartman, and Mike Myers, who had, in his own words, fallen in love with Radner after playing her son in a BC Hydro commercial on Canadian television. He considered <laughs> her the reason he wanted to be on SNL. Oh, they wow. They did not know how grave her situation was. Yeah. Uh, so Steve Martin's planned opening monologue was scrapped. And... He introduced a video clip of a 78 sketch in which he and Radner had parodied Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse in a well-known dance routine, dancing in the dark from the bandwagon. After the clip, Martin said it reminded him, reminded him of how great she was and how young I looked. Gilda, we miss you. Uh, mm. G.E. Smith, Radner's first husband, who is SNL's uh, band leader, wore a black armband throughout the episode. Yeah. She was interred and I suppose is interred at Long Ridge Union Cemetery in Stamford, Connecticut. And I want to give the last words for the core episode to Bunny Bunny. We're going to come back to his Bible and his Bunny Bunny book. We're going to come back on Patreon after dark. We're going to talk about her legacy. We're going to talk about the funny business that uh, Gene Wilder may have done on the set of Hanky Panky. Uh, and then we will also get a final poem and this funny little list from uh, from Gilda for mm. Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Uh, one second. I'm just finding this. So this is uh, from Bunny Bunny. And this is uh, this viable. Adam Memorial, June 1, 1989. About 14 years ago, I was hiding behind a potted plant, and this girl asked if I could help her be a parakeet, and I've been smitten with Gilda ever since. When we met, we were just these two kids in a big city, and because we made each other laugh, people invited us places we never got to go before. And now, well, I haven't mourned, and I haven't even cried yet, because even though she's dead, I just don't want her to die. I don't know why God makes people and then takes them back while they're still having fun with the life he gave them in the first place. Just like I don't know 
if I'm supposed to celebrate the fact that Gilda was in my life or feel cheated that she's not here anymore. But even though her body grew to betray her, spirits just don't die. And that's what Gilda was. Even as an adult, she was still a little girl who believed in fairy tales and that if she said bunny bunny on the first day of every month, it would bring her love, laughter, and peace. Well, Gilda, this is June 1st, and if you're in a place where you can't say it, I'll say it for you. Bunny, bunny. And I hope you're okay. I'm going to miss you, Gilbert. Hmm. And that, more or less, is the life of Gilda Radner. The epic, uh, maybe not often discussed. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, man. Thanks for taking us through that. That was was incredible. Man, I'm, I'm a little smitten with her, too. I mean, it just... Yeah, the energy and the and the and the sweetness and the and it's such a heartbreaking story, man. The last, you know, between trying to, to have a child and, and and this this terrible disease striking her. Uh, yeah, yeah, too short. Gene Wilder uh, did marry, to... yes. I believe he did. Yeah, Gene Wilder was the marrying type, but he always right. held a held a flame for her because it wasn't a divorce. Right. Uh, you know, it, right. it, he yeah. was there through it. Uh, this isn't the Gene Wilder episode, but yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he remarried. Yeah. Is he still alive? Yeah. No, he died in no, 1986. Or 86. Uh, no, 20, 2016. 2016. Okay. 1986. They're together <laughs> again. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, that, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Now you're now you're in the spirit. I didn't realize that Gene Wilder's yeah. from from uh, Milwaukee. Hmm. Yeah. Not me neither. Yeah. Yeah. And he died in uh, he died in uh, Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, yeah. And he did remarry. He married a woman named Karen Boyer in '91. So a few years after after Gilda passed yeah. away. Yeah. 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 Ah, Chelsea, where does that leave you on Gilda? You feel like you know her a little more? You feel I do, and now I just want to go look up YouTube clips. (laughs) Yeah. Well, don't don't go do that yet. You got myself. Yeah, no, you got to come back and do the after dark with us. Then we can throw on some some YouTube clips. Clips. We're going to talk about legacy. I've got some good uh, additional good stuff from It's Always Something, uh, and then that little saucy anecdote from the set of Hanky Panky, the movie they made together. Which yeah. the movie? <laughs> the movie yeah, <laughs> you could watch Hanky Panky. You could watch The Woman in Red. They're not bad, and then also Guild Alive. Yeah. It, it, this stuff is fun, right. and she's yeah. worth she's worth knowing. I mean, if you're a, a comedy connoisseur, if you consider yourself like into comedy, you owe it to yourself to to have like a a weekend of Gilda because it will yeah. help you lock in some pieces. Uh, that maybe, oh yeah, she seems it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's clear she's critical to like the development of especially sort of televised comedy. Yeah, she's she's huge. Yeah, interesting. She is. She is. All right. Well, I got to go downstairs and unplug a piano. We're going to be back in a few minutes for the after dark. <laughs> uh, Brad, I just I want to thank you because this really is the final episode for the year. We're doing the the yeah. eyes wide mm-hmm. shut watch along. That counts, but it's not a core. Ep- this yeah. is the final core episode. core episode. What year is it? 2022? 2022. It's 12-22-2022. Right I want to yeah. th- yeah. <laughs> say, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on. 
Yes. Grateful you're always welcome to ride along any Art of Darkness episode. If you see we do somebody and you're like, ah, I want to come on now, you can do a dark room with us. Maybe uh, in another season, we can you can make another pro- uh, proposal. I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Sabra wants to do Britney Spears. I, she's not dead yet. We can't do. I, we, we can't is do. She? We right. Yeah. When Britney dies, we can wait a year and a day forever. and then Sabra. Yeah, she will live forever. Be... But no, I'm so curious about Britney. We're, we love Britney. The, see the thing. I was just you're, you're, the thing I love about this is that this is this is not a subject that like I would have pulled out a hat like out of a hat or mm-hmm. Brad would have pulled out of a hat. So no, you've taken no. us. Not that we're not comfortable with this, but this is like not where we would naturally gravitate, which is one of the things I love about this show. It's also why people got to get on Patreon. You got to get in the telegram t.me slash art of dark pod. And I don't just we don't just listen to our blood relatives. Like if you've got an idea for somebody (laughs) we should cover, the only rule is they have to be dead for a year and a day before we will cover them. We don't ambulance chase mm-hmm. on this show and we try we, you know we don't try not to be those people uh but if somebody has died mm-hmm. within the past two years like bowie's up for grabs philip seymour hoffman's yep. up for grabs anthony bourdain's up for grabs we got the uh, queen with the, the queen, the queen <laughs> although i don't know if she really qual she's not really an art of darkness subject uh per se generally that but, we yeah. know right who knows yeah. Who knows? Maybe yeah. the queen was, maybe the queen was making hanky. Pants. Yeah, maybe she had a secret uh, like Robert Maplethorpe type uh, career that we don't know about. If it yeah. if it comes out and there is a biography about it, rest assured, your friends <laughs> at Art of Darkness will be there on the scene. That's I just correct. have to say uh, again, thank you, Chelsea, Brad. Thanks for a great year, buddy. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, for- dude, it's and- been amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and and thank you to our listeners for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of streams across the platforms. We're watching those numbers tick up. We care. Yeah. We we hope you enjoy the show. We love hearing from Brad. Loves when you torture him on Twitter at Art of. Dark I love Pod. it on Twitter. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, and, you guys are. You know, the the this is the 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 uh, motivation to kind of keep doing the show. That's why we're so amped about season three because, you know, uh, we'll, we'll just say that from right now to the beginning of season two the amount of interaction and and people talking to us and people watching has has multiplied by many factors and so you guys keep us going it's very exciting yes and we want to find this plateau and then go to the next one together we've got a Mm. great season planned super excited for the book club and uh you know Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, ha- whatever yeah. you celebrate or or don't celebrate. We hope you've enjoyed this season of Art of Darkness and are ready for season three because it's co- it's coming whether you're ready or it's coming, it's coming whether you're ready or not. That's right. That's right. That's right. right. That's right. But first, first we gotta <laughs> we gotta take a five minute break. Come back, do the After Dark for Patreon. Chelsea, you're beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Tell people again mm. where, where they can find you. At Chelsea Smith Cosmetics across all platforms. I'm primarily the most entertaining on TikTok, so recommend that one. I'm also on YouTube, but, you know, TikTok's where I was at. She's a TikTok superstar. Don't sleep on Chelsea Smith Cosmetics. She's getting it done. All right. We'll come back in in five minutes for the After Dark. 
All right. Boop, boop. What's, what's uh, I'm Roseanne, Roseanne and Dana. 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 It's <laughs> Baba Wawa. The Ben. <laughs> Baba Wawa. Go with something. Baba Wawa. <laughs> <laughs>